we're just going to take it nice and easy, nice and slow. We're going to work our way through a lot of these different articles and uh, lectures and discussions that professors are having and what have you. And we're going to go ahead and show you how this anti-Semitic trope, the realist sense of the word, and in a truly debased theory of false conspiracy and forgery that really exists and lies at the, the heart of this whole Khazarian kind of demagogic premise. And as we look back in history, we find that this Khazarian empire, if you could call it that, or kingdom, some people like to call it, uh, really works very well to have kind of a, a useful substrate from which to derive this, this anti-Semitic worldview. And I think that you're, you're going to see that ultimately as we go forward, there's going to be several points in history where you can see that this Khazarian theory really pops into the center of academic discussion and at the center of geopolitical constructs in our modern era. And there's two particular books that we're going to have to focus and laser in on here the best that we can that really do uh, do well to bring us into direct parallelism with this whole subject matter. So that the usefulness of the Khazarian kingdom to be used uh, now to be, to be brought out and vaunted out of medieval history as some kind of fake source of the Ashkenazic Jews can be shown to be false and demonstrated in, in several academic and scientific and genetic ways as far as genetic testing. So the, this whole this whole preposterous argument of a Khazarian source for Ashkenazi Jews starts in the, the 1950s with a particular book by a gentleman, and it's called The Thirteenth Tribe, right? And it's Arthur Kostler's Thirteenth Tribe book, and we're going to go ahead and digest it and break that down. And we can see that the, the existence of the Khazarian theory as a fully formed anti-Semitic doctrine that was going to be seized on by the right and the left, as we'll show, is something that wasn't established entirely in the time of Adolf Hitler. So this is going to be post-Adolf Hitler. But it goes back and draws back to medieval texts, and it presupposes this idea that the Khazarian kingdom, in its interest in the various religious doctrines of the time, having been an opponent of Islam and its rise at that time, and ultimately the instinct, the survival instinct of the kingdom of Khazaria was to resist and be a wall, a wall hedge, military phalanx against the rise of the Muslim state. And it didn't, even though the Khazarian kingdom has ultimately Turkish roots and Turkish language and history, it ultimately was going to side away from Islamic, this new wave of, of Islamic thought in the 7th and 8th century, and it's going to turn towards previously held Jewish and Christian doctrines and texts. So you can see that the the Septuagint and the, the scriptures, which is the basis of our modern-day Christian Bible, are going to be something that are going to be coming into a central focus of all the different world's kingdoms, and especially those in the region. And so you can see that the Khazarian kingdom invited many rabbis and Jews and Christian leaders into the country to discuss matters of religion. Okay? We can account for that history. That's true. The part where the entire empire now, empire of the Khazarian cognate, decides to choose to become Jews and make everyone in the entire kingdom become Jews and then get themselves wiped out by Genghis Khan and survive. Imagine surviving that. And then somehow spilling over into Eastern Europe to suddenly displace all the real Jews of reality, the real Jewish people, to become a false Jewish population. It's false. It's questioning it. It's calling into question the whole line of legitimacy 
of their Jewish race. It's a damnable law and it's a provocation of genocide, right? When you go to that extent to provoke a hostile narrative of casuistry, right, which is just practiced, carefully crafted deception, right, and manipulation, which undermines a people's entire race and their, their entire genetic heritage is undermined by these erroneous, fraudulent forgeries and theories. And they go right into line, like we said, with the idea that you have the false protocols of the learned elders of Zion being propagated about, created pogroms, got tens of thousands of Jews killed. It goes right into line with this idea that somehow Martin Luther was an anti-Semite, like we repeated before, with the, with the forgery, the Jesuit forgery of on the Jews and their laws. And if the Jesuits are so apologetic lately and being sued every which way, maybe they could come out and apologize for their forgery and their sophistry and their practice dissimulation of the truth in order to malign the character of the good and right and godly Martin Luther and the entire Protestant Reformation by trying to make him an anti-Semite. Now, that one was fully formed by the time Hitler was around. Hitler used that one. We can go back and establish that. The Hitler used that, that Jesuit forgery, anti-Semitic trope of on the Jews and their lies is, is somehow coming from Martin Luther. When if you go back and look at his preaching, he preached for the heart and soul of all the people of Israel and understood that the gospel was there to reach them for God and bring them back to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what the entire New Testament does. It's focused on the central piece of it is understanding the situation that the Jewish people are in and reaching them for God and for salvation and for the truth, right? And all the Gentiles and all the, you know, Greeks and Goyims or where have you, who, and all of us who glom on to the gospel and claim Jesus as our own can do it in a secondary way. If you go back and look at Romans, we're, we're, we're wild olive branches grafted in to the true and natural and right olive branch of God, which is Israel. So they're not a false olive branch or a false genetic line, but they're really the, the true and right people of God. So that's what we have to bring into line into the speculation here. And we're just, just why we're quickly doing this over here at you can go to this online library platform, jstore.org, and we'll give you the, the link for it if you need be. And we'll show you um, some of the beginning criticisms, breaking down the weak historical assertions of this 13th tribe and Khazar theory, right? So we have Bernard Rosenzweig, and he is going to forward a refutation of this particular dogma and doctrine that's being bandied about by Hamas, Palestinian terrorists, and, and Iran, and modern right-wing extremists, neo-Nazi groups, and just ill-informed leftists, and BLM, burn, loot, murder, right? BLM activists and Antifa activists all over the United States and every little, little college campus, nerded out, ill-informed propaganda networks, right, of the left, and the Marxian queers for Palestine groups, and all, all that. They're all lined up against Israel, and they're all bandying about this ridiculous, debunked Khazarian mythology. So let's break it down further. We're just going to read into this gentleman's particular writing here, where he is going to refute it, and he's talking about scholarship and how the 13th tribe is just not scholarship. It's not history. It's just completely erroneous medieval histories, which we, we know where who the masters of medieval anti-Semitic false histories and counter doctrines come from, right? 
So let's just read here. The 13th tribe, the Khazars, and the origins of East European Jewry. Okay. Seems really succinct. Seems like it's really getting us to where we're trying to go here. The origins of the East European Jewry are shrouded in obscurity, and it is difficult to define and delineate them with unassailable accuracy. The sources are scarce. The legends are open to attack and interpretation. And some of the scholarly hypotheses were advanced as a partisan weapon in the struggle for equal rights. Okay, got it. Yet a knowledge of the historical background of Eastern European Jewry is essential for the proper evaluative understanding of the modern Jewish world in which we live. We must remember that beginning in the 16th century, Eastern European Jewry became the center of the Jewish world and the Mecca of Jewish learning and creativity. In 1939, before the Holocaust robbed us of a third of the Jewish people on earth, East European Jews comprised of the overwhelming majority of the Jewish group. And the role of these people in the growth and development of American Jewry as well in the emergence of the state of Israel is so evident as to require no elaboration. Under these circumstances, any serious attempt by a competent scholar to come to grips with the problem of origins is worthy of consideration and analysis. Unfortunately, Arthur Kessler's book, The Thirteenth Tribe, does not fall into this category. Kessler has based his book on the most glamorous and exotic of all various theories, namely the Khazar theory. The Khazar theory contends that the roots of Eastern European Jewry are in no way connected with the biblical Israelite people. So there we go. We'll just leave it at that. And if you want to go into, into this article and more, you can sign up and read this entire article, which is just going to be a comparative disputation and a refutation, which is refuting and breaking down of this, this propaganda manifesto, right? It's just an anti-Jewish false history that tries to debase the entire Jewish people. And, and a, a, a branch of the, of the Ashkenazic Jewish race in Europe, and especially the one that was attacked by, by Hitler and tries to basically say that they're false Jews, right? So it's Jacques, it's all this is. So in order to carry on, we're just going to introduce just another article here, and it's called A Way Out of Epistemology, colon, Jewish Identity in the 13th Tribe. Kussler, his 13th tribe, author Kussler, his book. This is coming out of the Journal of Organized Behavior. And so I just took the time to download this paper and check it out. And just kind of proofread through it since it gives a lot of interesting information. I'm just going to break down and isolate the, the, the excerpts in the document that I'm trying to establish and make my point about that this book is erroneous. It draws together biblical parallels. It tries to take the, the international curiosity about Islam and uh, the Judaic religion and Christianity and, and kind of make it radioactive in the, in the conspiracy world as this ancient and extinct Khazarian kingdom explores different religious truths in the Middle Ages. And so those, those letters that are inviting different clerics and, and leaders and religious leaders to Khazaria to discuss what is God and what is religion and, you know, to explore the truth of all these matters at that time are now exploited and made into anti-Semitic hate doctrines that somehow the Khazarians are, they, they switched their religion to Judaism and they're Jews. So you, so you have the weird pretzel, you have to turn yourself into a weird pretzel right there because people are generally uninformed about medieval history. Do you know everything about what happened in the year 750? I don't, I'm learning, right? And they, 
So this Kazarian kingdom apparently existed up until 1000 AD, after the time of Christ's death, right? And around that time, they were their their nation was extinguished and destroyed by the rise of Genghis Khan. That's what we know. So how how all that history, that muddled and lost rubble of history, can be like somehow reglued to get back together again, and now somehow used by Hamas and used by Palestinian jihad, used by all the different hate groups and Iranian Quds forces, whatever, right? It's just it's just a justification. So the Palestinian president Abbas comes out and he, he talks about the Khazarian Jews and he makes statements about why Hitler killed the Jews. So this is all this is all a world consuming and a geopolitical concept and a construct of the enemies of I don't know what. I don't know what. The enemies of these people who are in Israel who are not Muslim. So we have to go into this a little bit more more deeply because all these institutions around are banding about this idea that somehow these Jews are not real Jews. So, you know, what does that even mean? We have all the, the information here that we can show. The, the research has been done in the last 10 or 15 years that shows that uh, all the Ashkenazic blood is identical to the other Jewish blood and, and has no trace of Kazarian or Turkish genetic features at all. Not at all. And so neither does the language, Yiddish, or the language or the culture or the customs or the cooking or the clothes. Or there's no customs. There's no bridge connecting Kazaria to the modern state of Israel, to the Jewish people, or to the Ashkenazi, or any, any other line of Jewish people, which I'm not an expert on. I'm just pointing out that these medieval discussions and letters from Kazaria are supposed to somehow substantiate and give definition and foundation to this idea that these Jews over here should have their state. They're not, they're not legitimate, right? So that, that's why Palestinian jihad uses it. That's why uses these tropes. And that's why the, the, the morons, right? The, I guess they don't realize they're neo-Nazis, but the neo-Nazis that are, who all these guys over there who are spewing out this Kazarian crap have just probably not been very well educated and have, haven't had the courage. It just, it fits so well with their world narrative and their preconceptions and their a priori beliefs that to have this, you know, and then there's a scripture about those who say they are Jews or are not in the scriptures. And so that just fits right with that. They got a scripture to go with it, everything. And so they just run with it. And so it just becomes this fully formed anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, right, anti-Zionist instrument, right? It's a political instrument and, and a, an ideological tool that they're going to use. And ultimately, uh, Christians who, who are Protestant Christians who believe in the Bible are fundamentally Zionists or Christian Zionists because we believe that the Lord is going to go over to his the physical hill. I don't know if, what, what Zionism means to people politically or Islamically or in, in Arabia or, you know, you know what I mean? In Russia, different parts of the world, what that means, Zionism means. But what we're talking about is the holy mountain of God. And it's, it's written in scriptures. It's written in, in the Proverbs and Psalms. And, you know, it's written in the biblical writings throughout, replete with this concept that God and his people are ultimately going to reside on Mount Zion in the final epistemology and the end of time. So we're doing this little here reading, and it just basically is, is a deconstruction of this idea that somehow if you embrace this theory of Kazarian false history, right, this revisionist propaganda, and that the implantation and the indoctrination of this theory within your thinking will somehow cause you to look at the people in Israel suspiciously. Because after all, it was Lord Baron Rothschild out of London who had a hand in in setting up the Jewish flag and the Jewish state and put a lot of his money into it. So therefore, it's it's, it's Illuminati. It's it's they have the pyramid thing on the roof. They 
you know, there's all these reasons why people are flipping out and saying how how there's secret society and occult symbolism in the structures in, in Israel. And then, of course, we have the same thing here in America. If you look at our dollar bill, we have Freemason and Illuminati symbolism on our money. So, I mean, we, we can't really, it's kind of hard. We're subjected under some of these same power structures out of London. But it's hard for me to jump over there and then use ideology as a tool of eugenics and as a tool of genocide to just intellectually delete a people's entire race, their, the entire foundation of their uh, racial ethnicity. So they're Kazarian, right? It's like Star Trek. They're Romulans. They're, they're invaders. They're outsiders, right? They're, they're somehow not they're, they're dehumanized by this process of trying to remove the epistemology, escape and find a way out of the epistemology and escape having to confront the Jewish identity, the covenant people of Israel, their identity in the land, and that, what that means. So it just takes all that away. Oh, forget about Bible prophecy. There's no Jews in the land. They're Kazarians. Right? See, this fundamentally is a tool, a well-placed, highly explosive, ideological, and geopolitical narrative that's implanted in history, and you can see who is banding it out about the most, and we'll get to that. So let's just for a moment take a look at this paper and kind of zoom down here to where I wanted to arrive at. And... I'm not, we can't read this entire paper. It'll be attached. You can check it out. Get down to the part. Forgotten Turkish Empire. Arthur Kostler starts the 13 tribe with stories beyond the history. From the 7th to the 10th centuries, Europe to the west by the Black Sea and to the east by the Khazar Sea or the Caspian Sea were ruled by a so-called Jewish state known as the Khazar Empire. Okay. Good luck in jumping to this empire. Now, I don't know how it became an empire, but it was certainly a kingdom. So let's carry on. Origin of the name is derived from the Turkish root gaz, means to wander, nomad, uh, word ketzer. And that also is a German word that means Jew or heretic. All right. So there's, there's a little bit of uh, wordplay there that Kostler is going to use. And so this is later in history, too, in 1978, when this, the kind of final permutations of these, this book is going to really try to take hold and try to step into the modern era, enter into the modern period of this Palestinian-Israeli conflict after they're already in their land, 30 years after they're already in their land, and he wants to now present this erroneous and explosive anti-Semitic manifesto that somehow, you know, he, and he tries to apologize in the book as if he's not, he doesn't mean to undermine the, the, the entire Jewish race with this theory. But of course, that's exactly what he does. And that's exactly why the, the, the Muslims and far-right extremists go ahead and just banter this about because it's useful to them because they're trying to further excuse their preoccupation with anti-Semitism. So let's just take this away from them. Let's deny them the use of this propaganda anymore. Yakuba, the Arab historian of the 9th century, declares that the origin of the Khazars goes back to the third son of Noah. And the so-called Japheth motive frequently recurs in literature while others connect the Khazars with Abraham or Alexander the Great, unquote. Wow, that's informative. So if you go back to Arab historians or, or Muslim historians, if, if that's the ninth century, they're Muslims at that point, you can see that this was already a useful equivocation and invented fallacy, a politically advantageous weaponry against the people of the book, the Jewish people, if you want, by ultimately pointing out that as this Khazarian kingdom and this Khazarian footprint in history reflects that they were curious about 
the different religious exegesis and orthodoxies of the world going on all around them, so that the whole world is being shaken up by the hyper-religious murder of Islam all throughout the, the Middle East. And it, and it does little to address this kind of overarching control that the Vatican has over Christianity at this time, you go back in the 7th, 8th, ninth centuries, because area is going to reject the geopolitical control of the Vatican, is going to reject the geopolitical control of, of Islam, and is going to kind of have the books of the original Septuagint, the original books of God, take a look at that, be curious about it, you know, in some kind of larger cultural way, and suddenly we're going to use that medieval context to somehow create an anti-Semitic and spurious ideological cutthroat and ideological murder of the, the people in the land today. So let's carry on with the reading here. In fact, the people in, in Kazaria are a people of Turkish stock. First, Turkish state lasted for a century and then fell apart from 550 to 650. Then the name Turk was used to apply to a specific nation as distinct from the Turkic-speaking peoples like the Khazars and Bulgars and, and then the Persians and the Byzantines. And the Byzantines would eventually come to call them the Kingdom of the North. So this is the Khazars, right? The culture of the Khazars, a dominant but almost forgotten power in Eastern Europe that adopted Judaistic worldview over a millennia before being destroyed by Genghis Khan in 1162 to 1227. I think they're gone at that point. The founder of the Mongol Empire is an intriguing subject worthy to study. It is unfortunate that there are not enough manuscripts about the Khazars. Kassler attempts to prove that the modern Jews are not biblical as well. That's his work. That's what he's attempting to do. There appears to be more material available today than in the time of Kassler's when he wrote his book, but the world is still waiting for a weighty book that addresses the Khazars' origin and how inconceivable it is that a medieval Jewish kingdom would appear. The 13th Kingdom is a well-written research book which provided insightful anecdotes while documentary evidence was entirely lacking. So there you go. Nice theory, nice attack on the, you know, it's like, it's like saying that anyone interested in reading the book should have a better understanding of the history than average people than the average Jewish people about their diaspora and recent situation in Central Asia and the tribal groups, West Europe and the Byzantine Empire. The reader should be open to a, a divergent view of the history of the peoples in question. Admittedly, Kosser was not an anti-Semite. However, his book has long been favorite among neo-Nazis who use it to claim that the people identified as European Jews are not the descendants of the people mentioned in the Bible, making it tolerable to hate them and kill them en masse. So then we finally arrive at it. We finally arrive at the thing. As we discuss all through the nuances and the tricky little medieval pair, uh, wording, and we try to find where exactly this suddenly becomes an established historical convention of reality to say that somehow the Khazarians were, were not totally consumed by Genghis Khan at all but somehow they survived to displace and replace. The, the current, as Kenazic Jews, the, the, true, the true bloodline that's there has to be disappeared, and then this false bloodline has to be introduced. So, you know, you not only do you have to introduce a false baby into the crib, you have to take the real baby away. I don't know where that goes historically, right? Lots of problems with this. We'll get into more into it as we go. So we, let's get into more about what we actually know. And, and I have to argue whether, you know, Kessler is really 
not an anti-Semite. I think he is in the covert way he is. He tried to maybe argue in the book that he's sympathetic, but the, the point and the thesis of his book is a Jesuitical attempt to undermine and assassinate the actual birthright heritage of the Jewish people, whatever the line might be. So let's carry on with the book here. The highly popular modern European theory returns to the middle 19th century, which serves that the Jews around Europe are not the same as those of the Hebrew Bible. Thus, disassociating European Jews from the tinging European Jews with various vogue stereotypes applied against Asians. So Dmitry Obolensky, professor of Russian history at the University of Oxford, admits Quote, the main contribution of the Khazars to world history was their success in holding the line of the Caucasus Mountains against the northern onslaught of the Arabs. Because the Khazarian, as we read on, Khazarian armies blocked the armies of the Caliphate and the, and the Arab Muslims after the death of Muhammad, the prophet from 570 to 632 AD. Conquest of the Eastern Europe. So there you go. That's that's. That's the most interesting and salient and rel relatively curious factoid that's glaring here is that the Khazars, whatever they were, Turkish or otherwise, apparently Turkish, right? We have to just kind of accept the historical analysis of Turkish. And they rejected the Islamic notion of religion and turned back in an orthodox extent to what had been religion before that, rejected the Vatican notion of Christianity and settled for something more orthodox, something more Khazarian. Right. And so this is the point in history where they become political enemies in a large scale political enemy of Islam. In as much as now that Islam is going to be the one who advances this thesis the most, this undermining doctrine of the Khazarian Jews mythology. Right. It's going to be on Hamas and the Palestinians. They're, they're going to be putting it out there. But also these defunct and illiterate and unlearned, and unprepared dupes are going uh, here on the the radicalized right wing are not are going to ultimately glom on to this these anti-Semitic doctrines too, and to somehow use them as a justification for this or that. But like we said, we can't go back in time and find the Third Reich using any of these anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic sophistry of the Kazarian replacement of, of supposed replacement of Jews. We can't find them uh, or Hitler using them because they didn't exist yet. They only came into the existence basically in the 60s through, like we said, until 1978 when, these, when this book is basically being published. And it's the only one that really puts it forward. And it's really just a false, revisionist, acrimonious agitprop by which the, and it's a, foot, a, a foothold for the devil, if you will, toehold for, for these modern pseudo-intellectual left-wing extremists and pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian, quote-unquote, freedom fighters, as they style it are going to end the Marxist extremists and uh, are going to ultimately find themselves being anti-capitalist. And, and it brings up and it, and it reinforces all these previous anti-Semitic tropes about how communism was started by Jews, right? Or capitalism is controlled by Jews. Or, you know, the world, the world conspiracy is being, and banks are all controlled by Jews, man. Like this, this whole kind of like low sub-intellectual branding of false history. And it's just useful. It's just useful sloganeering. And you can see that we are going to do our best to basically take that apart today. So we'll we'll add this little uh, paper that you can download and read it. And we will add that ultimately to the, the whole summation of our report to you today. And then we'll also add this other little interesting little piece of incriminating collaboration with these large-scale historical 
persecutions, ideological and historical persecutions, so that they're, they're well-laid little traps in history. You can see that the Khazars ultimately didn't go along with the rise of, of Muhammad. So it seems that the Khazars in history are good guys, but, you know, no good deed can go unpunished. So if they didn't choose the Arab demon god of Allah and chose the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then surely the Khazars must all be Jews, man. They must all be Jews, right? So that's what kind of like thinking is going on here. In order to kind of like carefully reinforce this in the backdrop, you do your your searches, you can see that Fordham University. Fordham University is a stronghold of the Jesuits. I hope you understand that little aspect of the whole explication here. But the Fordham Jesuits are keeping up on their website, Medieval Sourcebook, colon, the Medieval Jewish Kingdom of the Khazars, 740 to 1259. So there, there it is. And they, they have some of the letters. They have some of the, the I mean, who, who's going to go back and check these translations, right? But the whole point of them keeping that pseudo-intellectual and fraudulent, academic, and degraded promulgation of false history, like you see with Fordham University, they just kind of, oh, it's, it's up there. They put it up. Jewish, the Jewish Khazaria history that has some of the letters. And they don't, they're not going to say explicitly in there that the Jews are Khazars and the Khazars are Jews and we should just get rid of them because they're false. Right? They just put it up there just to, just so you know, idiots who, who can't read good and you just want to accept the presupposition that the Jews are somehow bad guys and they're trying to find out why the Jewish conspiracy controls Rothschild and London and the Illuminati and how we're all servants of the Jews, right? So we, this is how the low-level kind of disenfranchisement of the truth. And we're going to bring it full circle for you guys because it's not clear for the, the larger kind of debased, dumbed down, you got a public education, okay. You're going to go for this Khazar thing. You're not going to go and investigate and research it, pull at the threads of it, and find out how it's all just another anti-Semitic instrument there to augment, like Marx, Hustler, augments the future fighters against the Jewish colonizers with this kind of false history weaponry, right? Or they're going to use it. They're going to banter it about Khazars and Khazars. I'm, I'm here to unveil the true history that the Jesuit order operates as a crypto synagogue and there's a lot of writings about entitled the jesuits as a synagogue right the jesuits as a covert synagogue of judaizers right that's what it's really about and they it goes on to their history the early history of their refusal to let anyone to like the fifth generation of, of any kind of relation to jewish people be associated with the jesuit order in any way in fact hitler and himmler go back and use these blood purity laws that the Jesuits had been holding on to for some centuries, which basically maligned the Jews as subhuman and less than human genetic blood that you don't want in your family. It's, it makes you impure, right? So this, it goes back to the whole source and the beating heart of eugenics and genocide in the first place, which is targeting certain bloodlines and targeting certain people because of their, their heritage or their ancestry or their people group, right? The race, if you want. So we, if we want to go back in time into the medieval letters before even the time of Caesarea, we can find that it was really the papacy who had a problem with the Jews all along, who marked them with yellow markings and made them register with certain registries in order to, to do certain markets. You know, So that, that, that all that is established beforehand, before we arrived to World War II, and then Hitler just suddenly does the, the yellow stars and all that. That, that, that. All those implements of history already were pre-existent. And so I'm speaking to an audience who knows that. It's just us, right? 
So as we go and work harder here to dismantle this awful Kazarian mythology, we have to just have the courage to recognize how deeply implanted the BLM, Antifa, Karl Marx, Arthur Kessler, Kazarian, all these doctrines, and, and I guess the queer thing is in there too. So now we're this transgender, like eight-year-olds have to, you know, change their gender, and it's just become completely morbidly, horrifyingly, and obnoxious and disgusting in the extreme. Uh, so that you know, people are not prepared for what really is meant by queerism and how that really links up to the Palestine thing. Who knows, right? But it's a good showing of how sodomites and Ishmaelites somehow are being drawn together like some kind of magnetism in the end of time or something. Right? I don't really understand. But all the descendants of Esau, all the descendants of Hagar and Ham. So that's what I mean. Hamas, Hamas, like the Ham. Ham is a, a main party of the Hamites. You know, so yeah, this all this lining up with the Arabs, Syrians together to create these preposterous suicide murder cults, you know, are in the name of this recent religion innovation and in religion of Mohammedism, right? In order to kill yourself to somehow instantiate the will of Allah on earth. If they just blow themselves up and blow you up too, I guess, then somehow that just brings down the Arabic an Islamic eschatological paradise. So we'll turn now to a, when we go into counterintelligence, we have to look for the roots of ideology, right? Where do ideological roots come from? So we're going to go to this counter extremism website and we're going to do anti-Semitism in history. So let's find out where Khazarian narrative kind of springs from and where it kind of comes into modern thought and is now used as some kind of like real, supposedly real and salient, meaningful aspect of history that, you know, that somehow is supposed to give give meaning to the Palestinian cause. And, and, and the left banters it about as if it gives meaning to the Palestinian cause, even though they're just fat, rich, white babies in their college campuses here in the West, right? So what do they really know? Useful idiots. And they're always making the little memes and accusing us all of, of just being branded inside of our brain with the next thing. And, of course, they're all, like, running around the streets with Palestinian flags, even though we're in America, right? And they're using American freedom to like have Palestinian fly. Nobody knows, knows what a Palestine is, but it's all, it goes back to the United Nations and it goes back to the interference with the truly diabolical technocratic elite in, in, in their development of, of a world government. It goes back to, you have to have knowledge about the, the, the Albert Pike letters with Mazzini and how their plan to bring the calamity between the people of Israel and the people who are under the Islamic brainwash, right? And bring them into a clash of civilizations, it would be a third global, third world war. And that was the whole point. That was the, the whole plan here to have a third world war was to involve this powder keg, eschatological and prophetic alchemy that would bring about apocalypse or the Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon. So let's, let's read on here. Sixth century through the eighth century, the Khazars and the birth of an enduring conspiracy theory attacking Jewish identity. Okay. So there you have it. Beginning in the sixth century, the Turkic people from the Caucasus Mountains, area between the Black and the Caspian Seas, amassed an empire in Eurasia that it attracted exiles from Palestine and surrounding areas due to its position on the Silk Road and other trade routes. Known as the Khazars, the kingdom's citizens allegedly converted en masse to Judaism in the 8th century, following the, the lead of the Khazar rulers. The Khazar kingdom collapsed in the 13th century and its citizens migrated to Eastern and Central Europe, where they continued to mix with local populations 
This gave rise to the now vaunted conspiracy theory that modern Ashkenazi Jews, who represent a large segment of Jews worldwide, are not in fact the Jews of the Bible, but rather products of these Khazarian and somehow their mass conversion. Okay? White supremacists and neo-Nazi groups have lashed onto these ideas that modern Jews are not in fact descended from the ancient Israelites as an attack on Jewish identity and Jewish continuity. So it makes it easier not to have to like be responsible to the God of the Bible if God's special people in the Bible are no longer really real. Oh, it takes care of that problem, right? You don't have to respect that anymore. Like the modern uh, iteration, the mo modern permutation of God's genetic, uh, genetic people, right? In the descendants of the Israeli people and all their different family lines, wherever they might be today in their modern form are somehow, you know, not to be respected, not really relevant anymore in biblical doctrine. So you see how useful that little bit of replacement theology is? That's why these, these you know, wannabe Christian groups, wannabe Jesuits, right, papists, and these clansmen, right, and, and it, it goes to re, repositioning God in the Bible and his relationship to, to his people, right? That's what, that's, what the, that's what it's all about. That's what Hamas is trying to do. That's what Hezbollah is trying to do with this doctrine. That's what these KKK guys and these neo-Nazi guys are trying to do is they're trying to alter their relationship with God by taking the Jewish people off the chessboard of history by saying they're now irrelevant, they're not real, they're just false, they're Khazars, right? So that's why all these different weird, somehow seemingly disparate groups are together. That's why the Palestinians is with the Marxists and the Marxists is with the queers and the queers is with the neo-Nazis, and the neo-Nazis is with the Klansmen, and the, the Klansmen is with the Hezbollah, and they're all together. With Obama, they're all together in this big, big mess that's getting sorted out by God. And even though as they rise up and wave their black flags and do all their weird leftist, BLM, Antifa provocations that they do, now with Palestinian flags, right? It makes it hard to hold up an Israeli flag because it's a giant blue hexagram. And I just, it doesn't enter into me in the Bible and my relationship with the Jewish people. And I love the Jewish state. And I love all their, I, love, I mean, I love their fight for freedom. And may they, may the people of Israel begin to live in their land and endure there until the end of time, right? And then after that too. Okay, there you go. That's my position on it. But I just don't like that hexagram and that six-pointed star on flag. I think it's ugly. I don't think it goes. But it's not my flag. It's not my thing to think about. So, but that just, goes to the point that many people are, are going to be slow to wave that flag, even though we're here to support a Jewish identity. But a flag is just a thing, right? Let's read on. It's interesting exposure here. White supremacists and neo-Nazi groups latched on to the idea that modern Jews are not, in fact, descended from the ancient Israelites as an attack on Jewish identity and Jewish continuity. A search in the term Khazar on the neo-Nazi forum Stormfront returns thousands of hits, according to the former KKK leader David Duke had been a, a proponent of the Khazar hypothesis. Like these are theories that you don't know anything about. These KKK guys are, are proponents of it already long ago, right? The theory gained popularity among anti-Zionists after World War II in order to dispel links between modern Jews and the land of Israel, then called Palestine. Right? Pretty straightforward. That's what they've hitched their star to. That's what they've they've linked their intellectual integrity to. Right? They've all their moral moral character and all their all their education and the reading and the extent of all their knowledge has led up to this point where they they waved a Palestinian flag and, and supported Hamas 
and bandied about Khazar theory. The Khazar theory has also garnered attention from groups such as the Black Israelites and the Nation of Islam. See how they all come together? They love this. This theory works for them. Founded in the 8th century, the Black Israelite is an African-American movement that believes its members are the true descendants of ancient Israelites and white people descended from the Edomites, a biblical antagonistic nation descended from Esau. So there you go. There's more of the replacement theology. It goes back to Timbuktu and the university there, literally. And this idea that it's really this black identity, this black African nationalism within Islam that comports the reality of the true people of Earth and that all these white devils and, you know, all these other Jews and white people are really just erroneous and subhumans, right? Let's carry on with the writing here. The Nation of Islam, led by Louis Farrakhan, holds that the modern Ashkenazi Jews are false Jews descended from Germans, whom he called the worst people in the world in their hatred, second only to white Americans. So we will we'll just add this link in there if you want to go in and check some of this stuff out. It's pretty easy to go in and see that the, the debunk is there and that the his, historical account for Khazarian Jew mythology is not there. And that the, the state of Khazaria, the kingdom of Khazaria was a place, the, the Khazarian cognate was a, a brief kingdom that existed and then was gone and did not somehow replace millions of Ashkenazi Jews with Khazarian false followers of Judean teachings or something, right? So, so we'll turn to Brill.com. And I want to establish now how just like the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, how that was forgery and a, a provocation, ideological provocation against the Jewish people by making them, accusing them and making them culpable for the world conspiracy to enslave mankind was ultimately from Jesuit sources within Russia. So Russian source. So, and I want to now take a few minutes just to point out with this article by Victor Schnurman, story of a euphemism. The Khazars in Russian nationalist literature. So this takes it to another extent, because now we can see that these medieval anti-Semitic tropes that are now just kind of being unbrandished by Arthur Kostler in the 60s and 70s and in, in 78, are now becoming introduced as anti-Semitic revisions of history and retelling of history in order to change the political landscape today. So it's just Marxist. You can call this. Critical Jew theory, okay? That's what, that's what Kostler, Arthur Kostler has, critical Jew theory. And with this critical Jew theory, we can see that, and, and like, you know, using Marxist tools, reach out in every direction we can to grab on to whatever facets of history or economics, whatever Rothschild conspiracy forum screams the loudest. You know, we, we just can weave together total fiction out of these products the false products and retelling and forgeries of history that, that Kostler and Marx now provide. So let's jump over here to Brill and just read this. Victor Schnurman, a story of the euphemism, the Khazars in Russian nationalist literature. The history of the Khazars is still obscure. The large state with, which encompassed up to half of Eastern Europe more than a thousand years ago has completely disappeared, leaving no precise legitimate heirs. Historical data of the Khazars are scarce and fragmentary, permitting very different interpretations. Over the last few decades, all the new data on the Khazars were provided by archaeology, the materials from which made it possible to build up various reconstructions. The latter are often in conflict with each other and those based on the written sources. 
as a result, scholars have developed very contradictory views of the Khazars, their political structure and their culture, as well as their role in Eastern European history. Those beliefs nourish by no means the minds of scholars alone. Over the last few decades, they have been profitably used by Russian chauvinists for geopolitical and historiographic constructions aimed at discovering a would-be negative Jewish role in the development of many peoples of the world. So they're, according to this writing, they're trying to instantiate and surface and, and find intellectual, archaeological, and historical perspectives who would paint the Jewish rate in, in a negative light in the development and the peoples of the world. Okay, so that's why it was useful to them. It's useful as a ideological construct, a weaponized antithesis that debated strongly against the foundation of your entire belief system, right? Right. When that, when that changed things a little bit, that's the kind of doctrineering and ideological historical revisionist tinkering that this kind of work by author Kostler does. So let's get back to our, our book here. To put it another way, they manipulate the very scarce and obscure historical and archaeological data being very thin, as well as doubtful and poorly based hypothesis in order to confirm a priori reasoning and conclusions which might have far-reaching ethno-political consequences today. In other words, they use these thin invented ideological provocations to move the dial and further weaken Israel's own right and its claim that it has the right to exist. Nothing undermines your argument for your fight, your existential fight to exist, than some kind of ancient donation of Constantine, right? Some ancient forgery that pops up that suddenly says that you are not even who you say you are. And that your entire people group and your entire race is somehow in your own bloodline is some kind of, is, so nothing is more dangerous than these kind of ideas. And for them to go un, unanswered and unchallenged today in the media with all these guys running around, I think that there's too many people on the right and the left, the extreme left, who want to undo the entire foundations of the world by destroying capitalism and destroying communism and entering in some kind of enlightened Fabian socialism where everyone gets a, a basic income, gets a digital ID, gets a a world allotment of crypto coins from a central bank or something, right? Some kind of delusion like that. We don't need, you don't need your gun, gun rights or gunpowder or your constitution anymore. That's, that's, that's where these morons want to go. And uh, the idea of a God or scriptures or a Bible or Jews are just, it's all very passe, ancient. And uh, it works for them. If these, uh, these ancient people groups uh, just wipe, wipe each other out, sides are cheering. And so Israel, and it, it's already been ensconced into a well-placed dialectic. So this is massively, massive geopo geopolitical dialectic. And Israel and its fight to exist and have its place has made a lot of deals with the UN, having to try to be a, a real nation state with real bona fides and real representatives. And you're right. They've had to play the internationalist game and be have a seat at the UN and so on and so forth. And of course, then it, it goes into this idea of the two-state solution. Suddenly, it, just like in every Islamic lodge up on the altar, you have to have the Book of Islam and the Talmud, right? The Talmudic and Kabbalic, supposed Jewish Talmud and Kabbalah. Kabbalah writings go back to Babylon. They have to be up there. And so does the King James Version Bible, specifically. has to be up on the altar. As the as the forge, the place where you're going to hammer on the forge, ha hammer away and do the work with the tools, the hard work of knitting together a new solution, a new synthesized world religion. So it, it tracks that we have to have a two-state solution. You have to have the Temple of Baal law and Moose law, right? If you're over there with the wearing the fez because you're in the in the Shriners Lodge, with the, uh, the right, with the Templars, the Shriner Lodge part of it goes to a deeper understanding of the. Assassin sects, Tashishans, who 
were connected with the Templars long ago, whose ancient order, the mystical order, is like an order of shadows, right? Something that uh, that people can totally occult and people can't see it or understand it, but allusions to it by Eliphas Levi and Albert Pike and other occult pre-Masonic authors substantiate the, the veracity and the truth of it. So if you're not willing to accept that the Temple of Yahweh and the Temple of Musla of Baal are going to be have their doorposts side by side up there in the mount, then you, I guess you're not ready for this third temple situation, what's about to happen, and just the promulgation of a, a single world religion that everyone can embrace and accept. And of course, right in between these two opposing houses in the dialectic, between Islam and the Arabs and Yahweh and the Jews, is the Pope it's supposed to be the, the real vicar of Christ, the real representative of Christianity, bringing the sides together in peace. So this goes to the book of Revelation. This goes to everything we're talking about in end times eschatology. And it really brings it together quite neatly and nicely, too. I like to introduce this connection with Russian nationalism and how it had already, before Arthur Kostler and before we all arrive at this place in 1948, where we have the Jews in the land and we have to have the two-state solution, there's already this preempting of ideological incubation within Russia of this Khazarian doctrine. So let's carry on just a little bit more in this work here. I'm going to read some more. In this respect, one should talk of the anti-Semitic Khazar myth, unquote, being developed by our contemporaries, both scholars and amateur authors, picked up by mass media and purposely imposed upon the, gen the general public. This paper focuses on various aspects of the multifaceted mythology. When in the early 1990s, began, I began my studies of contemporary Russian nationalism, I was amazed at the frequency of references to the Khazars in literature produced by the Russian radical politicians. Soon I realized that I was not alone. The American analyst Walter Lakater was also surprised to learn that in the very late 1980s, Russian nationalists were fixated on the Khazar episode. For them, the Khazar issue seemed to be a crucial one. They treated it as, a, at first, a historically documented case of the imposition of foreign yoke on the Slavs, drawing a close analogy with the quote-unquote foreign yoke opposed on Russia from 1917 on, which is an illusion here about the Russian Revolution, where the people revolted against the Tsar and power players in, in New York City and power elites around the world and London and the major banking houses of the world, Brown Brothers and Harriman, etc., would uh, stop at nothing to send a, a boatload of radical provocateurs and radical, uh, if you want to have an allusion to modern era Antifa radicals and BLM murderers to go over to Russia, funded with gold from capital, right? Real capital, not Federal Reserve notes, but real capital to go over to make sure the czar and his family were going into a mass grave, right? And that the, the massive Russian state could be taken over and used by interests in the West and controlled in its massive economy and, its, and all of its massive population and wealth could be controlled under the idea of communism. And communism was a murderous and vile stain, bloody stain on Russian history. And it was a way that the elites out of London, because you got to remember the Tsar had a massive, massive bank account in the banks of London. And when they overthrew him, that that, that was gone, right? There's no, there was no one there to inherit it. The money just stayed in the bank, right? And that's, that's, the, uh, that's the nature of banking wars here. So in order to kind of pile on to this idea that somehow the what fell the Bolshevism that fell befell the Tsar in Russia was somehow from a Jewish conspiracy. That's what we're supposed to take. We're supposed to forget all about the interlopers from Wall Street 
and all the, the banking elite from London, all the skull and bones men, right, who take, took an active part in manipulating the affairs of the Tsar and making sure that he was assassinated and that his regime was destroyed. So it's much like what happened in the French Revolution to the king, uh, King Louis there and his wife, the queen. Moving on, they were especially alarmed because the Khazars ruled the southern part of Eastern Europe before the Kievan Rus state had emerged i.e. before the Eastern Slavs developed their own state organization. Even worse, the Khazar nobility converted to a Judaistic worldview. Those historic facts provided an appropriate pretext for arguing that Jewish intrigues and dominance were to be found among the very beginning of the Russian history. In this context, the term is Khazars, quote-unquote, became popular as a euphemism for the so-called Jewish occupation regime. It is the problem of the power of euphemisms, or the covert language of hatred that I would like to address. So this is a great paper, and we'll go ahead and add in the link so you can go in and, and explore this further too, and just see what we're establishing here. Is a history of euphemism and hatred and hate speech in the covert language of hate. We're going to switch now to a quick article. Abbas. This is the headline. Abbas. Ashkenazi Jews are not Semites. Hitler killed them for their social role. Repeating anti-Semitic canards, he previously invoked Palestinian leader claims European anti-Semitism, the result not of enmity towards Jews, but towards them as moneylenders. Oh, this, this is a whole new uh, fold. Since now we're supposed to fully imbibe the notion that the Jews are not even Jews anymore, it's not even anti-Semitic to say why, you know, all the reasons why they're being murdered by the Third Reich, etc. So we can now, in this particular article, we can see the use of this false pseudo-intellectual propaganda within the modern discourse and how skewed and how kind of insane and schizophrenic the Muslims and the Palestinian Liberation Revolutionary Council, blah, 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 blah. Right? So they're all, they've just become a hive of menacing, insane hatred and ideologically debased conspiracy fiction, right? That just whatever suits their, whatever, whatever floats their boat. And so I, I don't, I want, I want to make sure that we understand that a lot of this invective is being supported and being propagated by a lot of our universities here in the West. And remarkably, the highest and most concentrated libraries of that propaganda are at Jesuit universities. All right. So let's read a little bit of this particular article. In a speech, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas repeated a number of anti-Semitic canards he has made over the years, including unfounded claims about the origins of the Ashkenazi Jews and the Nazi dictator Adolf Hitler had Jews slaughtered because of their social role as moneylenders, not because of enmity towards Judaism. Speaking last month at his Fatah party's Revolutionary Council meeting, can you imagine all those nerds like giant, fat, corrupt Boy Scouts and they're in their little hate, hate a treehouse over there? Abbas outlined the baseless theory that Ashkenazi Jews are not descended from ancient Israelites, but an ancient Turkish people known as the Khazars, who, according to a discredited theory, converted to Judaism unmasked. Quote, the truth that we should clarify to the world is that European Jews are not Semites, unquote, Abbas said, according to a translation. His remarks by Middle East Research Institute, they have, quote, nothing to do with Semitism. So the, the propaganda here just get, gets to a whole new level. And in order to really kind of go back in time here, and to really show the concentration and the usefulness of anti-Semitism and these kind of useful mechanisms and the establishment of these disinformation casuistry is established in these erroneous and pseudo-historical accounts with spurious intention, just like we were looking at 
in the article with the Russian nationalist use of this Khazarian mythology. It helped them to debase the idea of an established Jewish people being connected with the biblical accounts in the Bible, being connected with the historical legitimacy of reality, right? So these are ways to try to cut off and isolate the people of Israel from their own historical heritage and destiny. And when you go back and try to rewrite the people's own historical accounts and undermine and destroy their own legitimacy within the chronicles of time, then you can see that you're waging war. And these are acts of war. These are acts of eugenics, eugenicists, right? Which is a term which would come later, but they're really genocidal acts of war against people, not only them physically, but historically, economically, politically, genealogically. The entire edifice of their demographic representation within history is now undermined and sabotaged, right? In this act of war. So we need to move over to a really more serious criticism. And here we'll turn now to this fascinating article at darknessisfalling.com. And it's going to go to do more to help us see how deeply entrenched the artifices of geopolitical propaganda developed by the prevailing power structure, namely Christendom, even even previous to the establishment in the 7th century of Islam. Before that time, even the work to undermine and to pollute and defile the true history of the Jewish people was underway and masterfully underway by the the high Vatican councils, which were busily shaping the new direction of the Roman Empire in the name of a god-man, a hierophant, a priest-king, right? A high priest over all the world. They're, They're developing and bringing up the Bishop of Rome to become this governor and emperor of the world. So as we are on this move, this, this development and this ascendancy of the papacy, just one of the, one of the several, the see of Constantinople and the see of Jerusalem and the see of, of Rome, and there was a, the Petrine Sea, the Episcopacy of, of Peter is going to be ultimately at this time, we go back in time, occupied by three high priests. Over time, those other high priests would be knocked out and destroyed, and those cities destroyed. For various reasons, eventually it would just be the papacy and the Roman Pope, who would alone be the one who would rule over the entire Christian world and become world emperor, if you want, in a spiritual sense, and rule over the kings, the temporal kings. They just had little temporal earthly kingdoms, so they had to be submitted to the, the heavenly emperor and viceroy of Christ, the Pope, right? Who ultimately, he, he alone would be the Petrine Sea from this point on. So, in order to confront this massive obligation of unveiling the source of anti-Semitism in history, we're going to have to do a lot of work here. We have to start, like I said, with this particular article, the Jews as a Roman Catholic scapegoat. The Jesuits cultivate Jewish smokescreen in order to hide their operations while providing a visible public scapegoat in which to thrust the blame for their own malevolent agenda of world domination. They learned a lesson from the historical persecution and destruction of the, the Knights Templar, their predecessors, October 13, 1307 AD by King Philip IV of France. The Jesuits are master chameleons and are become Jews, Christians, and Muslim, Buddhists, communists, or anything else they need to be in order to infiltrate and subvert churches, organizations, governments, and other disparate groups of people around the world. Many Jews who serve in the papal court and the nobility of the papal knights like the Rothschilds, are elevated to high positions in business and politics by the Jesuits and are 
either naive dupes or willing coadjutors for profit who have betrayed the their own Jewish people. And there is enough documentary evidence existing to confirm this claim. Here is just one quote of many that just about says it all. It's taken from the famous book, Rome Stoops to Conquer by E. Boyd Barrett, page 180-181. Quote, the Jesuits in the days when they controlled every Catholic court in Europe, and when, as an order, they were swollen with pride, were challenged by a like pride and a like intellectual intolerance by the Jews. They could not break or bend the Jew. They could not convert or seemingly convert. They could convert and seemingly convert every type of human from Japanese to profligate Parisian, but they could make no headway in leading Israel into the fold of Mother Church. They ceased to look upon the Jew as a lost sheep and identified him as an incarnate devil, the sworn enemy of the Catholic Church. And they hated the Jews because the Jews did not bow down in homage before them. Unquote. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic institution has blamed the Jews for the criminal intrigues it itself has perpetrated in order to absolve itself of any guilt and to lay blame for its crimes at the feet of an innocent party. And for over 1,500 years, many people have fallen victim to the Jewish diversion, and this is how the Jesuits have gone from strength to strength and conquered the world hiding in plain sight. Like Christians, all Jews have been declared heretics and are slated for annihilation by the Jesuits' doctrine within the Vatican cabal. And this continues unabated until the end when Jesus Christ returns for his church, taking vengeance on his enemies. That's according to the book of the Bible. So it's a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview that Jesus returns and saves his people and the Jewish people and all the, the, the Gentile followers against the hordes of those doomed to destruction. That's what the Bible says, right? So that's what kind of massive Hegelian conflict you find yourself in. Because according to the Muslims, they have the true book of God, and they're going to conquer all the Jews and Christians, and Allah is going to be dominant over all the world. So we have a problem. We have a, a mounting world conflict coming into play. And everyone can look at it the different way. The Muslim eschatology has Daesh, and the Muslim Antichrist, everyone has their kind of thesis about how events are going to go in the future. And ultimately, there's many in Israel who just want to rebuild their temple and have the, the greatness of the temple of God reestablished in Israel. And of course, this is the centerpiece of infusion of all prophecy and doctrine in occult eschatological arcana, right? So that the Freemasons are trying to plant their, their third temple. The, the Antichrist, the Antichrist of the Bible, or the Pope, in our opinion, wants to stand in the third temple of the Jews and proclaim himself God. So this, this final post-Testament revelation about the advent and identification of the Antichrist as the papacy stepping into the, the third temple. I mean, so those are all ideological concepts and prophetic eschatological concepts that are coming out of all the exegesis from within the scriptures, within the Jewish histories of the Bible, etc. So let's go down through their list. These are all the reasons why people are deceived in believing that Jews rule the world, but they don't, and it's incontrovertible. So let's go down to the list. The first, the very beginning of all commercial world bankers and trades were white, Gentile, Catholic, Templar Knights, not Jews. This doesn't mean the Jews weren't engaging in finance or trading 
but they were restricted and controlled by the Vatican to doing so only on a small scale. Rome Incorporated controls all competition, and this is something that's easily documented throughout history. Two, Zionism isn't a recent modern development as propaganda would have you believe. The first Zionists were white Gentile Catholic Templar Knights who captured Jerusalem in 1099 AD, made their headquarters there near the temple, and controlled Palestine as the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem. The idea of creating a papal state in Palestine is a Catholic idea. The Jews originally had no interest in returning to their impoverished land as they were prospering and living well in many large European and Mediterranean commercial centers around the world. The Bible also prohibited them from returning to Israel, which was their particular point of view, their religious point of view at, the, at that time. Three, anti-Jewish literature was being written as early as 130 AD by Justin Martyr, an early Catholic writer, and by John Chrysostom between 349 and 407 AD. These Men were white Gentile Catholic theologians who despised the Jews. Who, and I'll just add this: they built the entire edifice, the Gnostic occult historical dogma, into the Catholic Church. This whole preposterous blood libel that somehow Jews were Christ killers it comes from these early Church fathers, right? The very, the very fountainhead of anti-Semitism, right here. This stance is the official Roman Catholic attitude today towards the Jews. And it can't change. Add this part. It can't change. It's, it, it, it's built into the early church fathers. It's built into the, the canon laws. It's built into the moral theologians or whatever. And it's built into the Jesuits, and it can't be changed. By the time the Jesuits were coming online in 1540, they had blood purity laws that disallowed any Jew or any cousin of a Jew from five generations to be, to be involved. So there's really no way for us to sidestep this edifice and monolithic, hardcore religious indoctrination of hate that comes out of the Roman Catholic Church and just jump on to the, these new kind of Machiavellian counter-narrative political forgeries and just run with them, right? This idea that somehow all these forgeries by the Jesuits and all this, this establishment of hate by the early church fathers is somehow now negated in the modern Vatican power structure doesn't doesn't have any problem with the, the Jewish people, right? They don't rant on and further these premises of hate, right? And anti-Semitic invective, right? The Roman Catholic Church would never do that. But here we, just like we showed you, we have the link, we added it, Fordham University, carrying on with this pablum, this pseudo-history, this debunked Khazarian Jew mythology, and there the, uh, the Fordham Jesuits are just pumping it out. They love it. They love the disinformation and propaganda wars. The information wars, going back to medieval history, right? The, 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 the Hamas, Palestinian jihads, are, they think they're right. This makes it concrete in their mind that these Jews are just Khazarians, right? It's just another way to cast dispersions on their enemies. Right, so let's return to our, to our reading here. Anti-Semitism was and is a Catholic invention and is perpetrated by the Jesuits through their media machine. Anti-Jewish literature in Nazi Germany was based on the writings of these and other Catholic theologians and writers. These denunciations and these anti-Jewish tropes and accusations would fall, and false claims would fall on Protestant reformer giants like John Knox and Martin Luther and John Wycliffe and many other people who were, who, and they were deposed as actually Jews. And of course, these, these concepts, these, these erroneous and hysterical medieval accusations are not based on any documented evidence. Once again, these men were white 
Gentile, often former Catholic clergy. And those are desperate claims attempting to subvert the Reformation as a Jewish strategy of control in order to substantiate the conspiracy, the, the, the Jewish conspiracy for world control by international Jewry was really behind the Protestant Reformation, right? But that's, that's how kind of insidious and how, how far on tilt you go when you begin to kind of imbibe these re- revisions of history. All, once you have these warping effects of false doctrines, these warping effects of false history, then all the other historical accounts have to warp and bend and, and you fall into the black hole of historical nihilism, right? Because John Knox was an Englishman and Martin Luther was a German man. And so on and so forth. So these are these are different European men from around Europe who were becoming read in the scriptures of the Brit Hadashah in the New Testament about Jesus Christ. It was changing their perspective on the Roman Catholic Church. They're they're changing perspective on the Roman Catholic Church by reading the accounts of the Brit Hadashah and scriptures may have seemed like a Jewish conspiracy, right? It must have been some kind of weird Jewish Gnosticism because they had the New Testament who was telling them all this new information and showing how the Roman Church and the Roman, the Roman magisterium, the Roman cult of astrotheology and Jupiter worship was all really based on some absurd and false notions that weren't connected with Jesus Christ and reality. The, the Brit Hadashah and the Gospels were the reality and the exigent the identity of the, the person of Jesus Christ into, for the first time, into European society. And that took the form that they called the Protestant Reformation. But of course, it was just, it wasn't necessarily the, the reforming of the Roman church, but it was the breaking the back of false, false Roman Catholic idol worship. And it carries on. There is no documented evidence for these claims. And the main document cited, the, the, the fraudulent, quote, pr- protocols of the learned elders of Zion, unquote, have been fully exposed as written by Jesuit Joseph Abisayas prior to the French Revolution. And this was documented as the protocols of the learned elders of the Borg Fontaine. And of course, this was a very effective uh, forgery and, and mechanism against their enemies in, in France. And so they rewrote it and they republished it, kind of like an exposure of the Illuminati of the Jews, right? And they, and they just switched the Borg Fontaine out. And it's, it's 100 years later. And of course, if so facto, you have this exposure of the fraudulent exposure and anti-Semitic writings of the Jesuits. The claim that the Jews are masters of class warfare is spurious and not based on documented evidence. Many claim that the eviction of Jews from many nations proves their record for fomenting social dissension. Closer examinations reveal that it is the Jesuits covertly blaming and framing the Jews and using them as a scapegoat or smokescreen for their subversive program. History instead documents the eviction of the Jesuits from more than 80 countries throughout recent history, many of which are Catholic. Many popes even tried, even popes tried to suppress their evil activities and were murdered shortly after. The Jesuits, the masters of class insurrection and revolution, and undercover of the Catholic Church have masterminded and facilitated all of the violence and chaos of modern history. And they did it, uh, I will add this part, they did it framing the Jews, right? Every time there was a, a new Fed secretary, a Federal Reserve secretary, or there was a, a new leader of Bolshevism in Russia, or a new leader of the cause for a central bank, right? Yada, yada. It was always had to be a well-placed person of Jewish ethnicity. And this was not an accident. That's what that means. So going back to the Jesuits, their strategy is always the same. Create conflict between groups, racial or cultural, in order to divide 
And when killing has stopped, the Jesuits conquer and take control. The Jews always get the blame for their vile and insidious and duplicitous activities. So it's the Jews who are blamed for the U.S. Civil War, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution. Closer inspection of historical documents revealed that it was the Jesuits who fomented and financed these events through their Masonic puppets in order to move their program for new, a new world order closer to fruition throughout the manipulation, overthrow, and control of governments, right? So there was this massive, ubiquitous, and murderous conspiracy underway, but, but the Jews are only set up as the past, right, in a historical scale. Back to the reading. Once the Jesuits control the governments of the U.S., of A, Europe, Russia, and China completely, they can implement their fascist social control of the masses, etc., etc. Seven, claims that the founder of the Jesuits, Ignatius de Loyola, was a Jew are also misplaced and unsubstantiated. These are, there is documented evidence that Loyola was a white Gentile Catholic Templar military man from Basque, from a no, noble line of the family of Loyola, in the, in the area of Loyola, the house of Loyola, who was also a member of the Spanish Alambrados, the secret society. Loyola is on record stating clearly, quote, there are no Jews in Giuseppe, quote, province, unquote. Loyola, after being accused of being a Jew, is on record stating that he, in many ways, admired the Jews. So it's interesting that whenever Ignatius Loyola was arrested by the Inquisition, right, in Spain, and was accused of being a malefactor in the state, their main concern was whether he was a Jew or not. This is before the Jesuits is formed. This is before the Jesuit order is established. This is the Inquisition throughout all of Europe and Spain and France and England, everywhere, everywhere the Inquisition could go. They were looking into who is a Jew, right? Fascinating, period. However, even after being hauled in front of the Inquisition twice under suspicion of being a Jew, he was acquitted once again, demonstrating that he was not. This claim was likely, most likely finds its source in the Jesuits themselves as they are masters of lies and disinformation. Once again, if the Jew conspiracists can paint Loyola as a Jew, then in one stroke they can prove their Jewish conspiracy to be true. This, is, this issue is also discussed further in our documents, blah, blah, blah. Finally, in those touting Jewish conspiracy claims, eight, they cite world Freemasonry as being under Jewish control, thereby, thereby enabling the Jews the mechanism through which to control the whole world. Would that it was so easy. Once again, there is a wealth of documented evidence proving that since 1776, AD at least, Freemasonry had come under the control of Adam Wyship, a Roman Catholic lawyer in Roman canon law, and a Jesuit was commissioned by the Jesuits shortly after they were suppressed in 1773 by Pope Clement XIII and XIV to form the Illuminati Secret Society. And this was with the purpose of bringing all secret societies under the control of the Jesuits and ultimately under the control secretly of the Roman Catholic Church. Many point to the symbols used in Freemasonry as being Jewish, but if we study hard and more carefully, we see these symbols precede Jewish culture and have their origin in Babylon. So there is no solid argument there. Jews don't control Freemasonry, although they have been involved in it at different times, at different levels. The secret societies and all religions have been infiltrated by the Jesuit order and are being co-opted for their final goal, spiritual control of the people of the world through a one-world satanic religion. Fascinating, right? That's another side of the, uh, of the argument that you don't hear. So now we have an antithesis. We have 
a polarity here. So there's not just this ubiquitous argument for but we here in America, people who are of the book, people who love Jesus Christ. We love the people of Israel. We love the, the prophecies and the future fulfillment of our holy books to crew and that the placement of the Jewish people to be at the right hand of their God and the establishment of their mountain in Zion to be the establishment of the holy mountain of eternity. It's a pretty big deal. All right. So that's what these, these anti-Zionists and these Kazarian mythology liars, that's what they're, that's what they're fighting for. That's what this whole BLM, Antifa, Marxist support for the destruction of the, of the Jewish state, the destruction of Zionism, right? It's going to lead you directly into a confrontation with the living God. And it's not for me to like expose that or express that or denounce that or make it clear. That's just their problem that they're going to curse and fight and attack and try to make war against the people of God as if there's no creator of the universe there preparing to defend his people, right? And that's what they'll say, oh, we don't believe that. Okay, well, it's all about a, it's all a world of belief and perception now. You believe that those people are cut off. You believe Israel's trapped. You believe that they're surrounded by their enemies. You believe they, they, they have no escape. You believe that the, the Jewish nation can be destroyed. That's your belief. That's your perception. And you will pursue that like a hook in your jaw. You will pursue that and no one will stop you. So let's carry on. We've done a good job of establishing how the Khazarian sophistry, the Khazarian casuistry is used against the people of Israel. And we have to go over here now and look suspiciously at the attempt by the Jesuit order to continuously propagate this anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish fury and hatred against the people of Israel in order to more establish the hold of the papacy on their holy land, right? The holy land of, of Rome, the holy city, you know, the, the place where where the Pope should have control and wrest it from the, the Saracens and the Muslims. It's so important. Let's have a crusade war. Let's have 12 crusade wars to take away Jerusalem and give it back to the rightful people, the Jews. No, no, they're, they're Khazarians. They're false Jews now. We don't need to give it back to them. We can just keep it for the Pope because it's his holy land. It's his crown jewel in the Christendom as he builds his new, you know, his new global empire out of the United Nations, right? It's interesting how the Pope has many seats, many, many seats at the United Nations, right? Ostensibly, he has the seat of Italy, and then he has another seat in the establishment of the Holy Roman See. The, the, whole, the Holy See has its own seat on the United Nations, right? Wow. Democracy, international global democracy at work right there. And so also do the other accoutrements of the European Union, right? They all have seats at the United Nations. I wish, I wish we could be like the Pope and we could all have, we could all have 12 or 15 different seats or whatever and have a controlling influence at the United Nations. But Israel, Israel sadly only has one, one seat. And the, I guess the two-state solution suggests that they should have a Palestinian seat right next to them that cancels out all their votes or whatever. And we can see the United Nations exists only as a mechanism to basically have resolution after resolution after resolution against Israel, right? Isn't that what they did when they went up to war with Iraq? They just resolution after resolution after resolution. That's what they're doing to Jerusalem and to Israel. Little by little, they're they're just raising the energy up. They're building off the hysteria. They're escalating and escalating the warmongering. So in order to really put this thing in this whole hard to discuss, slippery subject into its rightful place, we have to do our very best to frame it in a way where it's, it's sensible. So we have now to turn finally to this book by a Jesuit, James Bernal, Jesuit Kaddish, right? Jesuit Kaddish. In order to break down our an understanding of what this book is really about, let's listen to this little abstract write-up. Of course, the Jesuit Kaddish, 
Jesuits, Jews, and Holocaust Remembrance. University of Notre Dame Press. Okay. While much has been written about the Catholic Church and the Holocaust, little has been published about the hostile role of the priests, in particular the Jesuit, toward Jews and Judaism. The Jesuit Kaddish is a long overdue study that looks at the Jesuit hostility towards Judaism before the Shoah or the Holocaust, and then examines the development of a new understanding of the Catholic Church's relationship to Judaism that culminated with Vatican II's landmark decree, Nostra Aetate. James Bernau's study is historically accurate and spiritually ambitious in its desire to have its story of the Jesuits' relation to the Jews and Judaism somehow contribute to interreligious reconciliation. At the end of the, 12th, the 20th century, Pope John Paul II called the Catholic Church to examine its responsibility for anti-Semitism that led to the Shoah. In this study, Bernau undertakes such a self-examination as a member of the Jesuit order. This new book demonstrates the way in which Jesuit hostility operated, examining Jesuit moral theologians' dualistic approach to sexuality, and in the case of Nazi Germany, the articulation of an unholy alliance between a sexualizing and Judaizing of a German culture. Bernau then identifies an influential group of Jesuits whose thought and action contributed to the developments in Catholic teaching about Judaism that eventually led to the watershed moment of Nostra Aetate. At the heart of this transformation after World War II was the Jesuit Cardinal Augustine Villa. So that is the carefulest and most kitted glove treatment of really what this discussion is really all about. So we have to go to this. We're going to turn to another article. Like I said, all this information is going to be stuffed into the show notes here for you to look through if you have time, if you want to substantiate it or if you have a problem with it, if you want to refute it, feel free. This goes back to 2020. Jesuit Catholic priest Penn's book about his order's complicity in the Holocaust. That's, that's, that's more of a, of the gloves are off, bare knuckled approach to describing what the Jesuit Kaddish is really about, right? That's, that's our headline. Let's carry on with the article. Historian James Bernau's book, Jesuit Kaddish surprises academic Catholic order with a novel study of its own members' anti-Semitism and honors those who attempted to save Jews during World War II, which apparently there wasn't any, guys. I don't see any Jews being saved. So whatever kind of like double-dealing Jesuit dissimulation that is, or that they turned to save the Jews, okay, no. They worked to establish an industrial-scale Holy Roman Inquisition, and they butchered and destroyed and burned and annihilated as many Jews as they could possibly find. There was none that turned to save any. Okay, that's just... Yeah, right, that's that's a Jesuit book for you. So the article goes on. When the Nazis launched the Kristallnacht pogrom against the Jews during November 9th to 10th, 1938, the reaction from many religious leaders was muted, especially in Rome. I think that's where we're going with this. Most Catholic leaders in Germany did not criticize the destructive pogrom, and across the Atlantic there was similar silence from the flagship Jesuit journal America. America is a journal. It's a flagship lead Oregon lead magazine of the Jesuit uh, order, guys. But a new book portrays how all Jesuits, members of the Society of Jesus, kept silent about the Nazis. The daringly titled, quote, Jesuit Kaddish, Jesuits, Jews, and Holocaust Remembrance, depicts how some priests joined the re resistance and gave their lives to it, and even 15 became recognized as righteous among the nations. Yet it is those innumerable 
thousands and thousands of others who did not speak out or even joined the Warmark as chaplains, who remain a primary source of concern for authors James Bernal, S.J., a Jesuit who retired this year from 40 years as a professor at the Boston College. The book was established by the University of Notre Dame Press in March. This should have been written about years ago, Bernal told the Times of Israel in a phone interview mentioning his surprise that many of the highly academic Jesuit order didn't know about this part of their history. Yeah, that sounds realistic. Unlike past scholarships on the Catholic Church, which focused on the papacy during the Holocaust, Jesuit Kaddish zooms in on the International Order of the Jesuits, who were founded in 1534 by St. Ignatius of Loyola, and have created academic institutions worldwide. One such institution is Boston College, where Bernal was director of the Center for Christian Jewish Learning and served as the Kraft Family Professor of Philosophy. The most famous Jesuit is arguably Pope Francis, who Bernal has met and praises. Fascinating. The, the book discusses Jesuits' hostility to Jews and Judaism through World War II, expressed not only through anti-Semitism, but also what Bernauer calls asemitism, a belief in a world without Jews. That's a new word, asemitism, quote-unquote. Thank you, Bernauer. Thank you for this insight into this rabid, and disgusting, and depraved Jesuit order. Sickening anti-Jewish hate. And all the anti-Jewish hate that you preserve within your thinking and your beliefs and your ideas are all probably generated from the spurious dissimulation and forgeries and anti-Semitic revisionist history that we're seeing established here in this Kazarian mythology, right? That's what one of the tools that will help them get to this asemitism, a world without Jews, right? That's that's what the that's what role the Kazarian invective, the Kazarian mythology, that's what purpose it serves. Bernard first became aware of the Holocaust while growing up in what was then the heavily Jewish neighborhood of Washington Heights in New York. In Fort Tryon Park, he would see Jews with concentration camp numbers tattooed on their arms. As a high school student, he and the rest of the world breathlessly followed the Eichmann trial going on to study philosophy at Fordham University and the State University of New York at Stony Brook, Jesuit, of course. His areas of expertise have included the famed chronicler of the Eichmann trial, Hannah Arendt. His scholarly travels took him to Germany, France, and Israel as he continued to study Holocaust-related topics. Anti-racist letters get lost in the mail. In the book, Bernauer shares how a Jesuit leader helped stifle a papal letter on racism, even as the need for it grew during the period of fascist ascendancy. When Kristallnacht led to the burning of synagogues, Jewish businesses, and homes in Germany and Austria. So in a way to read that, is that the Jesuits were stifling letters or any attempts by the papacy to help Jews in Germany. Let's read on. As Europe largely declined to condemn fascism, Pope Pius XI wished to create an encyclical or a papal letter to the Catholic Church that would address racism. It was supervised by the superior general of the Jesuits, Vladimir Lenachowski. Quote, it seemed that Lenachowski deliberately kept it from the Pope for several months, Bernauer writes. He calls Lenachowski's quote, fiercely anti-communist, and one source of his hostility towards Jews was the fact that he held them partially responsible for communism. In World War II, Bernauer said Jesuits motivated by anti-communism as well as patriotism served as German military chaplains in the East, even though Hitler had banned them from that position. Bernauer estimates that a number of 650 of the 405 ultimately dismissed due to Hitler's ban. Quote, is the form of punishment that's used in the East were forced to clean churches and streets, occasionally under the supervision of the Jesuits, Bernauer writes. Wow. Later he notes, uh, quote, as the brutality of the military actions increased, 
some Jesuits came to realize that the war that had been considered a struggle against godless communism had itself become a crime against humanity. Perhaps that realization came too late. Oh, you think so? You think it came too late? So this is a lot of really carefully examining this through a rose-colored lens. The Jesuit order was at the very center of being responsible here for making sure that the, the war and the hostilities and the anger and the ideology that was pouring out of Hitler's Germany would take an anti-Semitic bent. Then eventually that these moves towards totalitarianism and fascism in Germany would become anti-Semitic. They had it in their power to make it otherwise. They had it in their power to give their imprimatur as priests and as chaplains within the German army. They had every means by which to guide the thinking and the conscience and the thought process and the beliefs and the carefully developing consciousness of the German soldier himself. You're in war. It's a state of an extremity. It's a state of extreme circumstances. And guiding the German mind along that path were these Jesuits who were totally hostile to the Jews. And they made it their, their effort. They made it their duty. They made it their prime objective to make sure that this war would end with the fulfillment of the Counter-Reformation, with a Holocaust, which is a sacrifice, people sacrifice of Jewish flesh. Murdered European Jews by the millions would be accomplished as a Counter-Reformation strategy, bringing online this industrial scale Roman Inquisition that destroyed all the enemies of the Pope in these gas chambers using Zyklon B, using American and European corporations, IG Farben, on and on. I don't know. So we have all this information. We've done our very best here to to bring this around and make it more salient, more usable and understandable. We showed you at Notre Dame and other Jesuit universities like Fordham here have centralized their academic thesis around some of these arbitrary anti-Semitic tropes. And finally, I want to add in, which is apropos and much wanting in this episode, a simple Jewish college professor who's going to clearly articulate how it is that these kind of concepts of the Kazarian precursor and kind of conspiracy theory of a false Jewish, false Jews, Kazarian Jews, right? These kind of absurd demagogic sophistries are casuistry, right? That's a new word for you guys. Casuistry is something that is carefully crafted lies and deceptions aimed at delegitimizing your opponent, right? So in order to further this discussion even a little bit more. We're going to kind of wrap up with this interesting reduction and analysis of the Kazarian mythology to really put it in its place. Now, you might be asking yourself, what is this is Khazars, and I will try to fill in. The Khazars were a tribe, a very powerful tribe, in the 8th and ninth centuries. They lived what is now southern Ukraine, Dagestan, maybe over a little bit into Uzbekistan, near between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. If you don't know exactly where it is, don't worry, because nobody knew exactly where it was in the ancient world. It was far away from every civilization, but it was a very powerful state for a while. And if you think a little bit about the map, you have the Middle East today is basically Muslim with some Christian populations and a little island of Jewish populations. Islam spread from what is now Saudi Arabia towards the west and also began to spread north. It was the Khazars who apparently stopped the spread of Islam and then the early Slavs, the 
were now the Russians and Ukrainians converted not to Islam, but to Christianity. So this nation had an important impact on the course of world events. One can only imagine if the Slavs had become Muslims and not Christians, how world history would have played out. So it was a powerful nation, it was possibly a large nation, and the story was that they converted to Judaism, and some, many people have said that the Jews of Eastern Europe are descended from this population. Now, this has implications, uh, it's been bounced around, Arthur Kessler wrote a book about this, The Thirteenth Tribe, Shlomo Zahn wrote another book, Invention of the Jewish People, claiming that basically most of the Jews today, or at least Ashkenazi, East European Jews, are descendants of Khazars and therefore have no relationship to a population in Palestine or Israel or whatever term you want to have. Now, I teach mainly at the university. I have experienced that, you know, after you talk for a while, things begin to tiring and not everybody can stay so focused. I certainly can. So before anybody drops out, I want to say that this claim is charging my like is nonsense. Uh, why can I be so, and usually not so emphatic about things, but here we can be pretty certain and I'll give you two pieces of evidence and then we'll go to what I think is really interesting. There's been a lot of genetic study of Ashkenazi Jews. Why? Because Ashkenazi Jews have some really neat genetic diseases. So it makes it a very interesting for people who are studying genetics and the spread of diseases to trace familial relationships and to see where on the genome you have these diseases. And there's some interesting correlations between various populations. Now, one of the things that the geneticists have found is that the Ashkenazi genes show relationships to all kinds of populations, but absolutely no connection to anything resembling the genes that we find in the Turkic tribes or the Turkic populations of Central Asia, which would have been the case if the Khazars had been the uh, ancestors of East European Jews. The genetic similarity between Ashkenazi Jews is strongest to North African Jews and it has strong to other populations, including Palestinians, but it has nothing to, no similarity on the genetic level with what we have in Central Asia. Then you can also take a totally different approach, which also is evidence, it's not as emphatic as genetic evidence, because it's hard to argue with genes, but take a look at the Yiddish language. You have Yiddish today is spoken, it's been spoken for hundreds of years. You have a common word in Yiddish, which is called the bless when you the blessing after a meal in Yiddish is called benching. Like in a bench, you sit down, that's the state of blessing after the food. What does the word come from? The Latin, benedictus, a blessing. You have the word like, uh, there's a Sabbath food, which is often eaten among Ashkenazi Jews. It's cooked on a pot all set, all the, for 24 hours, or whatever it is. I'm not sure how long. It's 
along the pipe, and with potatoes and beans. This is called chaud, and it comes from the French chaud, or hot. It stays hot over the sap. In Yiddish, we have many words of <coughs> Latin and Italian French origin, which reflects the migration of Jews. There are almost no words in Yiddish of Turkic origin. One of the exceptions in Yiddish is a very useful word in modern Hebrew, balagan, for something which is total disorder. This does come apparently from the Turkish, but it comes by way of Polish. Not, and there's no need to try and find some uh, medieval Khazar source. Now, if um, thousands and thousands of Khazars had migrated to Eastern Europe, you would have to have some kind of a clue or remnant in the Yiddish language, either foods or names of trees or plants. There's nothing in Yiddish that reflects the origin. So if the genetic evidence is clear-cut, if the linguistic evidence is clear-cut, then we can certainly put aside the question that the Jews of Eastern Europe were descended from the Khazars. There's only one good reason to claim this, and that is you have a political agenda. So that you can't argue with. You can say political agenda can be good even if the evidence is not good. I mean, history, in my opinion, is not a justification for politics. You have to separate the two. In any case, the Jews of Eastern Europe are not descended from a Turkic tribe. However, the question is, did this tribe convert, or this nation convert to Judaism or not? So I didn't know very much about it. And the truth is, I didn't really care very much, as long as I knew that they didn't have any impact on the demography of Eastern Europe, because I'm interested more in demography. Then, a few years ago, this per a person named Moshe Gil uh, published an article in Hebrew in which he said this whole thing is nonsense. The stories about the conversion of the Khazars to Judaism are just imaginary. They never converted. I read the article. It was interesting. It was another thing to put in a footnote. But the article was, I, I think it's no secret, it was really poorly written. It was frag fragmentary. He made a claim, the footnotes didn't fit the argument. Uh, there were a lot of important issues that he ignored. I couldn't understand how the editors of the journal even let this article slip in. So, you know, people at Hebrew University can be pretty snobby, and I tried to avoid it, but it crept in. And it really was bad. Then I <coughs> asked around, who is this guy in field? And people looked at you don't know who he is. He's got 93 or 94 years old, a specialist in medieval Islam and Jews in the Islamic world. And when I opened my big mouth and said, you know, this article is really bad, people looked at me and said, Stanford, he got a big mouth. If you can write an original article when you're 92 years old, you can be happy, even if it isn't well written. I mean, who's going to argue with Gil and tell him to rewrite his article? So. I realized that I have to accept, I should accept my place. And then I waited for the academic response. 
you know, for the big experts to say something about the article. Nobody says anything. People talk. And there was a, one international conference after another about the Judaism of the Khazars, and nobody invited Gil or nobody discussed Gil. It was just like forgotten, partially because the article, I think, was not well written. So I thought maybe this is something that needs a little bit more attention because somebody should just check and see were the Khazars converts to Judaism or not. Even though, again, it doesn't affect the question of the demography. It's just an interesting question. So I decided nobody else is going to do it. I'm going to do it. And this is actually, I didn't realize how complicated it was going to be. If I realized it, I probably would not have done it because it's not easy to do. The sources are in many, many languages. And it requires a fair familiarity, which I don't have with, I didn't have this, I know a little bit more now, with medieval history. But it was kind of funny. There was one requirement which uh, I found for the retrospect that was useful, which uh, I, was, I actually had at my ability. Now, going around, one of the reasons I went into is because I found the university that I have, somehow people look at me and they think that I'm much more pious than I am. The combination of a beard, which is because my wife likes beards, and the yarmulke, which is because that's what God wants, the combination of the two makes me look very, very pious. And people were always asking me to give a lecture about rabbis. And I said, I don't want to deal with rabbis. I'm not the way I look. The demography was a way of escaping it. Now, in the course of my studies at the university, I had the opportunity to study Bible critically in university manner with a very good a number of very good teachers, among them Moshe Greenberg, if anybody studied Bible. And I also had the opportunity to study Talmud. And oddly enough, I did this for fun, here it came into use, because sometimes when you deal with the text, you have to analyze the words and the philology, and the people who deal with the Khazars <coughs> on the whole are really, really brilliant. It's really frightening to work in the area because you feel like a midget, and you really are. You know, they say, well, in Hungarian, it's like this, but if you look at, I'll take Turkic languages, it comes out a little bit differently. They're brilliant, brilliant people, but they're so good at looking at the words that they're less used to looking at the story itself and seeing, does it hang together or does it not? And here, experience in studying Bible, when you realize that some of the stories are very interesting literary creations, but not necessarily precise depictions of what happened. And if you take a look at Talmud, and you see the arguments of the rabbis, then you realize that this is a literary formulation. The fact that the text says the rabbis said this or that doesn't mean that they said it. This is what the editor of the text is setting up. This experience was kind of useful for me. So I came into this, I told you I was going to use the word I more than I should, 
I came into this with a little bit of experience with text and a little more experience with the critical reading and understanding of stories. So, the next step in dealing with the question, did the Khazars convert to Judaism or not, is to look at these stories themselves and to uh, look at the sources and to see what are the sources that we have at our disposal. So, I wrote a big article about this. I think it's actually going to get published. So, if you want all the footnotes and the details and the page 26 on the top, you can, it'll, it'll be out, I hope, one day. If you're really, really eager, I can try to send you answers to questions. But in general, if you look at the text, what is the best possible text? Now, when we're looking in history for historical text, what we would like to have is something written at the time, first person, hopefully objective. These are the kinds of sources we like. Second hand, third hand is very often what we get, but it's not as good as first hand. Now, with regard to the Khazars, we have a first hand source. We have a correspondence between Khazdai Ibn Shafrut, who was a Jewish courtier man of the court in medieval Spain, and the king of the Khazars, who lived in Khazaria, somewhere between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. It's pretty far away. We have a letter of Khazdai Ibn Shaprut, which he writes from Spain and says, I've heard that the Khazars converted to Judaism. Please tell me about yourself. He was thrilled by the idea that here, a warlike nation had accepted Judaism, his own religion, and he got it. There's an answer written by Joseph, king of the Khazars, in which he describes the history of his family's kings of Khazaria uh, and describes how generations previously his great 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 grandfather had had a dream that. Uh, his behavior is pleasing to God, but the way he worships God is not correct. And it went on and on. Ultimately, he decided to have a competition with representatives of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Each one would present the merits of their religion, and he would be able to find out which is the best religion. And this is what Hasdai loved. Guess who was the winner? Judaism was the one. So for, this is the punchline of the story, and since then, for generations, the Khazars have been Jews, and they uh, welcomed scholars, and they built study halls and grand synagogues, and on and on, and written in beautiful Hebrew. Now, here is where a third factor came in, which once again, I'm using the first person I noticed, but here it's very helpful being a experienced teacher of first-year students at university. <laughs> when I get a paper from a student which has the word whereas or cacophony, the next thing I do is I start checking in 
on the internet, because I want to know where he got it from. There is no first-year student who's going to use the word whereas or cacophony or any of those other multisyllabic words. And the question is, is it going to take me five minutes or a half an hour to find out where he's copied? There's one person I never found, but I know they copied. My best was, my best was two minutes. I said, gosh. This sounds like something my teacher, Jacob Katz, would have written. So I pulled out Jacob Katz. I had to say the student had good taste to copy from a really great scholar, but uh, gotta give credit. So when I see something that's written in beautiful Hebrew from a tribal leader somewhere out near the Caspian Sea, it begins Something is a bit wrong. Now, of course, you can explain this. You can say that he's a king. He doesn't have time to sit down and write. He's got a ghostwriter. Even people who are more important than the king of the Khazars have ghostwriters to write their uh, speeches. So let's take. Uh, so he might have had a ghostwriter who was a brilliant Hebraist and knew how to write a Hebrew full of biblical allusions and references to verses, etc. Then begin to look at the story. Right. Does it really make sense that you're going to have an argument between a Jew and a Christian a Muslim and a Jew and the argument is going to crush the opponents with the claim you're both based on Judaism? This, that's not the way arguments work. There are answers. A good Christian debater, a good Muslim debater can easily provide answers and responses as to why their religion, why, while in one way or another, based on or preceded by Judaism, is a superior force. You don't win an argument like that on points. Moreover, if you check the dates according to the letter, you go back to the great, 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 great grandfather. When you look on a time scale, it turns out that this guy's great 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 grandfather who converted Judaism was active before there was a Khazar nation because it goes back too far. But uh, he goes back the, it goes back to the seventh century. He says he we don't have a precise date for the letter, but it was written, let's say, around the year nine hundred. And he says that his great 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 grandfather was 340 years previously. Whether he think he's Spanish uh, and the Khazar? No, no, no. The Khazar, the Khazar writing about his great grandfather dates his great grandfather 340 years earlier. We don't, we don't have a date for either letter. But the approximate date for the letter that came from Spain. There's no written date. So you so the approximately has to be if it was real. If it was real and it came from Khazgai even Shafu, there had to be in his lifetime. Which is in the tenth, uh, late ninth, early tenth century. So whether it was I think the whole thing is forged. But if it was real, it was written either when he was young or a little bit older. Now, if we take a look at the contents of the letter, then we also 
notice the fact it's written in such brilliant Hebrew, which it really is, then you begin to say, gee, what else do we have written in Khazarian? And there's nothing. No scholar from Khazaria, no other biblical commentaries or Talmudic commentaries or poetry. We have no text from Khazaria other than this text, which appears to be Khazari. And the king of the Khazars, in this letter, writes a description of his land. You know, and the king of this land. He is a, the description is a little odd because he writes about the land and he describes the agriculture and the orchards and the fruit trees and the brooks, which is all very nice, which is maybe applicable to some parts of that area. This is not, the area between the Black Sea and the Caspian is not quite paradise, but there are places where there are trees. However, what were medieval Turkic nations mainly in that period in terms of economic activities? They had flocks. They were horsemen of the steppes. They went back and forth across the steppes on their horses. They had sheep. They had goats. They had all kinds of animals like this. Not a word. In this description, it would be a perfect description of what country Orchards, he doesn't mention olives, but he could have. <laughs> <laughs> Palestine may be Spain, certainly, but it does not fit because of a step culture. It doesn't, there's no reference to the dynamics of migration because these nations, all of these nations, the Khazars and the Alans, the Bechetics, I'm just throwing in words to make an impression on you. Don't take me seriously, but there really were nations like this. They were all nomads, like the Huns and the Mongols. That's why they were so powerful, because they could sweep in on their horses and sweep out. So there's no reference to that. Not only that, he does mention the cities near Khazaria. And when he talks about the area of the Crimea, which is on the Black Sea, or the areas to the south, the description fits pretty much what we know. However, when the description comes to the east, which is toward and the, where the caravan routes would go towards China or to Iran, which was very important because this, in the medieval period, this was a kind of trade route which went from east to west. When he talks about that, then his geographical descriptions are very, very vague and quite inaccurate. And here you begin to wonder, if this is a king of the Khazars, he should really know where the trade was coming from the east. And you read the letter, it doesn't fit. So when you have a series of problems like this, then you begin to really have to wonder, is this a text that was written in Khazaria by a king who didn't know where his trade routes were, who didn't know what his economy was, who didn't know exactly how many years his grandfather had lived, who boasted about the study halls and the scholars, even though 
somehow nothing came out of these scholars, you begin to wonder, is this really a text that was written in that time and place? Could, God forbid, this be forgery? Do we know of any texts written in Spain which were attributed to authors who clearly were not written by those authors? Do we? Yes, we do. Okay, this is not a fair test. Uh, Jewish studies experts, we have the Zohar. The Zohar presents itself as being written by a Palestinian rabbi, Shimon Bar Yochai, and it was written, it was compiled, it was put together. You can, nobody knows exactly how it came into being, but it was certainly not written in the time of the Romans in the land of Israel. This is a Spanish creation. Now, if you write it in Spain, you say this is a written book written by Job. Who wants to read a book by, written by Job? If you say it was written by a famous rabbi in Roman Palestine, oh, this is a serious book. So the Zohar got into the literature as a pseudepigraphic text. That doesn't mean it's not worth studying. It's extremely worth studying. It's very valuable. It's an expression of religious thought. It's just not a very useful source about life in the first century in Palestine. You have to take it as it is. So we have in the Middle Ages all kinds of words which are attributed and they're not written out of maliciousness or to trick historians, but they're written in order to fill a need, to come to answer certain problems that people have. And if we're dealing with the Jews in the Middle Ages who have their fair share of problems, they have no monopoly of problems. I think that, from my opinion, I have a simple measurement you're probably better off as a Jew in the Middle Ages than being the average non-Jew. Most of the average non-Jews were peasants, and they were really kicked around. But the Jews thought they had a fair number of problems, and they did. And a story like this about an exotic place in which, and in a fair competition where Judaism is the winner, for Jews, this was a really good story that encouraged and strengthened them and met a need. So if we put this text aside, then we have to look at what are the other sources. Just because you have one inaccurate text, that doesn't mean the other ones are also inaccurate. There's no guilt by association. If we look at the other ones, however, they're problematic, each one in its own way. There is another Hebrew text which describes the story in a totally different way. It says that basically there was a the uh, Jewish fam families in Armenia that fled to Khazaria and they intermarried and then there was a Jewish, there was a military commander by of Jewish descent whose wife pushed him into becoming observant of the Sabbath and of, Kash of the laws of kosher food and he became very observant and when this happened the king of Makedon and the king of Arabia became furious. How could a Khazar commander revert to Judaism? And they sent delegations, and there was an argument between the 
two uh, representatives of the Christians and of the Muslims and of the Jews. And when it got to the combination, one of the Jews said, well, there's a cave. Let's go see what's in the cave. And they went into this cave and they found their sounds a little bit like Quran. And they went and they found manuscripts. And the assimilated Jews were able to take these manuscripts of the holy books and to read them. If we could find out how this would happen, this would solve the problems of Hebrew schools around the world. <laughs> and they were able to read these manuscripts and understand the truth of Judaism, and then the others simply surrendered, and uh, from that point on, the Khazars were Jewish. And it's a great story, but it's difficult to find anything, but there's a story that you can really take seriously as a, as a reality. There are also problems with the language, and uh, there's a lot of Arabic in there, but that's, that's, not, that's not to the point. The main thing is, the story itself is so fantastic that you really find it difficult to build on it. And there is a uh, statement that almost every, even within a fantastic story, there is a kernel of truth, but not every oyster has a pearl. Some oysters do, some don't. And not every fantastic story has a historical kernel. So if we want to look at sources, then we have to go at sources which are more problematic, but perhaps more reliable. And there are a fair number of Muslim geographers and historians who write about the uh, Jewishness of the Khazars. Now, uh, there's a whole list that, uh, since I took this very seriously, I took each one one by one and analyzed them, but I'm not going to do it now. What I will say is, though, that for the Muslim writers, this area of Black Sea, Caspian Sea, was really far off from civilization. For them, and they are explicit about it, it was basically close to the lands of Gog and Magog, these uh, wild nations from the mentioned in the Bible and the more importantly the mentioned in the Quran, what nations that are tied up to the struggle which will come at the end of the world. And there was a very widespread belief in the Middle Ages that Alexander the Great built a great wall to keep Gog and Magog away from the civilized world and if they had ever breached the wall, they would destroy humanity. Now, it could be that this is a spin-off of stories about the Great Wall of China. That could be. But in any case, they thought it was a wall to keep Gog and Magog out. And the Khazars are regarded as a nation which is close to Gog and Magog. In other words, for them, for most of these writers, these, uh, this was a world beyond the civilized world in which people could do strange things. There were animals which had the heads of men and the bodies of a horse. There were all kinds of strange people. There were magic rivers. And you also could have a population of which of all things would convert to Judaism, which is also reasonably barbaric uh, step. If one takes, now here, you can listen to me, but don't believe me. Check me sometime. If you take all of these descriptions one by one, each of the sources that we have in the Muslim geographers 
are almost each contradict each other in terms of the dates, in terms of the dynamics. They do mention the story that the Khazars converted, but there's no systematic picture, and there's what's most important, there's no explanation of why and how this could take place. Now, these texts were all written in either in current present-day Iraq or in present-day Persia. Uh, the, in other words, they were written far from the scene where it took place, and the people who wrote relied in second and third hand information. So we have a we don't we have interesting sources, contradictory and not the most reliable. And now in the very in the limited amount of time I have left, I'll discuss negative sources. Because basically I'm the negative person, so I like the negative sources. First off, we have a great deal of literary sources from the Middle Ages among the, from the Jews. We have the Cairo Geniza, we have literature of the Babylonian Gaonim, lots and lots of texts. None of them ever mention the story of the conversion of the Khazars to Judaism. And you think about it, for somebody like Maimonides who was dealing with, with the struggle between Judaism and Islam, this would have been such a beautiful thing to cite. Here, in a fair competition, is Judaism one in a discussion? There's no reference. Not a word. Not only that, there were populations that were even more interested in the Khazars than the Jews. And that is the Byzantines, because the Byzantines were neighbors, they had a kind of a common border. The Khazars were sometimes enemies, sometimes allies. The Byzantines had information on the Khazars, they had interest in the Khazars. You go through the Byzantine sources, I didn't, but I read everybody who did, and I checked all the indexes. There's not a word about Khazar conversions in the Byzantine literature. Now, to think that a strongly Christian kingdom, which was deeply interested in Jews, maybe because they didn't like Jews, would not mention the fact that the Khazars were Jewish is odd. They have very nasty things to say about Khazars. They're cheats, they're liars, they're violence, they're violent, but they don't call them Jews as well. We have, and this is even better, letters of Christian missionaries who were sent to Khazaria, but they don't say that they were sent to convert the Jews. Not only that, there's a kind of a left-handed compliment. They say that they went to Khazaria and they were welcomed by the king and he allowed them to present their ideas. Now, why a left-handed compliment? What kind of Jewish king would allow missionaries into his country? If you had a Jewish king, why would he be tolerant? There's absolutely no precedent for it. And either he would kill them or he would throw them out. Why let them into a country? So we have then an absence of references where there should be references, behavior which doesn't make sense if the Khazars were Jewish. We have we have evidence of conversion to Christianity in regions that were under Khazar rule. Again, why a Jewish kingdom would allow this? I mean, can you imagine 
I'm not going to say any names, but you can think of a few rabbis. Can you imagine them sitting quietly when this happened? We have no literary productions of the Khazars. And now again, relying on other people who know much more than I do, in the Georgian literature, in the Armenian literature, in the Persian literature, there's no reference to the Khazars. So, all in all, if you look at the story, you say, all right, what real evidence do we have for the Khazars? The best we can find is problematic evidence in the works of geographers and historians. However, we have not an argument from silence, but what I call an argument from silences. Many different national literatures, in each of one, by every reason of logic, should have somehow responded, and they don't. And if you have silence here, and silence there, and silence there, and a tradition of exotic tales about exotic places, and one last thing, if you take a look at the archaeological evidence, all of the archaeological work that has been done has not found any evidence for conversion to Judaism or even of large-scale Jews. There are there were Jews in Khazaria. So the fact that you find a Jewish gravestone proves that there were Jews, which we know, but not significant numbers. Burial customs of Khazar rulers, and this we have some burials, don't fit Jewish burial traditions. The Jesuits uh, were created as a result of the Protestant Reformation, and they were finally created or chartered by Pope Paul III in 1540. And their purpose was to uh, uh, destroy the Protestant Reformation and bring all the nations back that had separated from the temple power of the Pope to the Pope's spiritual and temporal power. They also were created, which I just recently learned, to do war with the Saracens, to go to war with the Muslims of the Middle East. So they were created for this purpose, and as they had their constitutions that were written, um, they had their secret instructions, uh, they set out to regain the world for the Pope. What the Pope did not know is that the Jesuit order is an order completely within and of itself, and that it has its own agenda. And uh, for two centuries, they began to amalgamate all their power into their hands. They were behind assassinations, regicides, U3. Um, they were ultimately suppressed from France, Portugal, Spain, and all their holdings in South America. They were sent back to Sevilla and they were ultimately suppressed with the papal bull Dominic Acredentum Noster in 1773 by Pope Clement XIV. As a result of that, the Jesuits launched in ways of French Revolution. They punished all the monarchs of Europe that had suppressed them, including the Knights of Malta, drove them from their islands, confiscated all their treasures and weapons to conduct a crusade into Egypt to kill the Mamelukes uh, that were the protecting uh, the Egyptian caliph there. Uh, in, 1514, in 1814, the Jesuits were revived after Napoleon deliberately betrayed his army, sacrificed it at Waterloo, and then from there on, the Jesuits have sought complete and total control over the papacy, which really culminated in 1870 with, the, uh, with Vatican I and the doctrine of papal infallibility. By centralizing all power in the Pope, they could then control the entire Roman Catholic hierarchy and institution through that one uh, man of theirs. And then, because in the 1800s, uh, most of the Roman Catholic countries of Europe had expelled the Jesuits except Belgium. They then fled to, to Britain, 
the United States, and they made Britain and the United States their bases of operation to launch what I call in my book the Second Thirty Years' War, which began in 1914 and ended in 1945. And they punished all the nations in Europe that had expelled them, had suppressed them, including France. France had expelled them in 1880 and in 1901. Germany had expelled them in 1872 with Bismarck. Uh, Spain had expelled them in 1868 and again in 1932. Uh, nation after nation had expelled them. Russia had expelled them in 1820. They remained uh, formally expelled from Russia until Lenin readmitted them in 1922. So uh, they were getting back. It was, it was their, Je their Jesuit vengeance during the 1900s with their second 30 years war. They then, what they did was they created the Cold War, and during the Cold War they then established their state, their Zionist state of Israel controlling what I call the post-Masonic Jewish Zionists, which aided them in their uh, European Holocaust, which aided them in their mass murdering of the Russian Orthodox people throughout the Soviet Empire. And because they were so obedient to the Jesuits, in 1946, the Jesuits removed their statute forbidding any Jews to be in the order, and so now there are many Jews openly and secretly within the Jesuit order. Now, I did use Loftus on several points. For example, Reinhard Gellin, Knight of Malta, uh, of the Gellin Org, teaching the Mossad in 1951, training them. So there's a connection there to the Mossad with the CIA, which I bring out in my book. But if I might finish, the, the SS continued to exist by way of the CIA. And our whole intelligence agencies were Nazified when all the SS boys were brought in here by Cardinal Spellman and J. Edgar Hoover through the Vatican rat lines that existed after the war, and the very same Vatican rat lines that Zionists use after the war also. I did say that the Jesuits wanted to get rid of Kennedy because Kennedy wanted to end the Vietnam War, and the Jesuits wanted the Vietnam War. Uh, they wanted to get rid of Kennedy because in ending the Vietnam War, that would have ended, for the most part, this huge drug trade that the Black Pope runs through his mafia and through his uh, international intelligence community, which is all tied together. It's all one. Yeah, furthermore, JFK wanted to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces. The CIA was a continuation of the SS. And so, therefore, if he would have done that, he would have broken the Jesuit general's intelligence power in this country. The, the extension of that, which to a certain degree you have helped me with, is that if JFK would have broken the power of the CIA, he would have broken the power of the Mossad. And that cannot be because the black pope has full intentions of maintaining that nation of Israel in existence until he can have the third Hebrew temple rebuilt to the papacy, for which reason the Zionists deeded the old city to the papacy via Shimon Peres and Yossi Bellin in 1993. So, so yes, I will say that those are the reasons why the Jesuits had Kennedy killed. And furthermore, Kennedy was a resisting Cardinal Spellman. He had Diem. He participated in the assassination of Diem, who was a favorite of Cardinal Spellman. That was his inquisitor in Vietnam. And so therefore, in seeking to end Spelling's war, uh, Kennedy was an, uh, was an enemy of Spellman, and thus the Knights of Malta, which Cardinal Spellman commanded, which included James Angleton, Henry Luce, William F. Buckley, John McCone, the head of the CIA, Carthage DeLoach, the third in command of the FBI, all these knights in key positions at the time of the assassination. The Jesuits, the high Jesuits, the black folk, controls all high-level Freemasonry. They were all the first 25 degrees in the College of Clermont in 1754, according to Masonic sources that I quote in my book. They wrote the last three eight degrees 
when they were uh, taken and protected by Frederick the Great of Prussia and created the Supreme Council of the 33rd Degree. So the Jesuits exercised their control over nations via high-level Freemasonry and the Knights of Malta. And this is your connection to the Supreme Court, particularly the Warren Supreme Court, that uh, validates uh, abortion, uh, removes prayer, removes Bible reading. They do it by the power of their Jesuits at Georgetown University using high-level Freemasonry. That's the tie to Zionism. The Office okay. of Strategic Services, if I might respond, was okay. headed by a Knight of Malta named Wild Bill Donovan. And his first allegiance was to Pius XII. And his right-hand man was another Knight of Malta named James Angleton, the man you rightly finger as one of the key people in the Kennedy assassination. Well, I believe that the Council on Foreign Relations controls the press, controls both parties, controls the banking, controls academia, and the CFR is controlled by the Archbishop of New York in the days of the Kennedy assassination, Francis Cardinal Spellman. St. Patrick's Cathedral was called the Tower House. That was the, that was the place of all of New York was run. And the ADL is subordinate to the Archbishop of New York. And thus, today, it's the Archbishop Edward Cardinal Egan who runs New York and thus runs the country via the CFR. This is a Jesuit maxim. One of the Jesuit maxims is you rule through a trusted third party. And the trusted third party in America is the CFR. The trusted third party in Britain is the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And so as they rule through this trusted third party, they stay behind the scenes while their lobbyists and others do all their bidding for them. Men like... Uh, that wicked uh, Charles Schumer, 33rd degree Jewish Freemason, member of the CFR, men like William F. Buckley, Jr., member of the CFR, Knight of Malta, Skull and Bones, uh, the Bushes, Prescott Bush, Jr., is a Knight of Malta, uh, his brother, George H.W. Walker, H. Uh, Herbert Walker Bush, he's also a Knight of Malta, entertained the Grand Master of the Knights of Malta at the White House in 1988. So the head of the of the Council on Foreign Relations is, in fact, the Archbishop of New York, and one of his key Jesuits was the former president of Fordham University, Joseph A. O'Hare, who was the one who successfully got Michael Bloomberg as the mayor of New York City, campaigned for him to win. Well, I believe Michael mentioned that he felt that the Rothschilds ruled the CFR and thus the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and thus, if that be the case, what we have is international Jewish supremacy. In fact, the Jews or these high-level Masonic Jewish Zionists rule the world. Would that be a correct conclusion, Michael? Uh, yeah, essentially. We'll just leave it at that. That's okay. good enough for anything. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm saying is that according to the Bible, which I accept as my final rule of faith and practice, Revelation 17:18, uh, the woman that is described there is a great city. And I believe that great city sitting on seven hills or seven mountains is Rome, and that city is described as it reigneth over the kings of the earth, Revelation 17:18. So it, the political power, I believe, according to that verse, is Rome. And Rome is Gentile, it is not Jew. We go also to Luke chapter 21, when the Lord Jesus Christ spoke, and he said, You shall see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, and know that his desolation is near. And then let them who are on the Judea fleet of the mountains, it goes on and so on forth, and it says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive unto all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And when is the fulfillment or the ending of the times of the Gentiles? 
Christ then describes it as, and there'll be signs in the sun and in the moon, and uh, men's hearts failing them for fear, and then the Son of Man comes. So from the destruction of Jerusalem to the return of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is called the times of the Gentiles. Therefore, pursuant to these passages, we live in a time period where Gentiles rule. And Deuteronomy 28.44 says the same thing. It's the Gentiles who are the head and the Jews who are the tail, not vice versa. And my concern is that if we come to this conclusion that it's the Jews essentially that are responsible for this, the Jews in general led by their Masonic Jewish Zionists, this will lead to a Hitlerian Holocaust in North America. And if that is the conclusion the American people want to make, then Genesis 12 is going to come into play, and this nation will be cursed exactly as Germany was cursed, and we will suffer our undoing. Rather, I would say, look to the Jesuit order. They are the ultimate Zionists. If you look at the Dreyfus Affair, uh, the Jesuits caused the whole Dreyfus Affair when they uh, had Captain Alfred Dreyfus illegally convicted. And who was there at the trial? None other than Theodore Herzl, so that he could start his Zionist movement with his... Uh, with his uh, audience that he had with the Pope in 1904. And especially in the light of certain facts like these. In 1993, Yossi Bellin and Shimon Perez were responsible in the heat of Oslo of secretly deeding the old city of Jerusalem, especially the Temple Mount, to the papacy. Now that's a very, very important fact to show that the Zionists who run Israel are working for the benefit of the papacy. Why in the world, if they would run the world, would they ever do such a thing as that? That's very important. So I feel that uh, Michael would do well to consider the Jesuit history. I, on my CD I put out with the 13 old books, it goes back to their history some 150 years prior to this time, and it's worthy of a reconsideration, especially when we see the Jesuits involved in the initial creation of Zionism with the Dreyfus Affair and that the Rothschilds have been known as the keepers of the Vatican treasury for at least a century and a half to two centuries. I might also add, too, that I failed to bring up, was the doctrine of the Pope's temporal power. And as uh, you see the two keys on the papal flag, one represents his supposed spiritual power, and the other is his temporal power. And the temporal power of the Pope says that the Pope has the right to rule the governments of every nation of the world. And this is one of the maxims that the Jesuits work upon, that because of this supposed right to rule every government, they have the right to usurp them all by any means necessary, including third-party Zionists. Um, my position is that the Bible is a final authority of faith and practice, therefore it's historically Protestant, historically Christian, historically Baptist, and a Calvinist in my position of the persuasion. And therefore, uh, it's the same... Uh, Hegelian dialectic of the Reformation versus the Counter-Reformation that has continued to this day. That the doctrines of the Reformation, an open Bible, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, versus the Jesuit orders, Counter-Reformation, Council of Trent, condemning freedom of conscience, condemning freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and the fourth session of the Council. And this is my point. The Jesuits are the ultimate Zionists. Uh, Cardinal Bia was another one. In fact, Cardinal Bia was the moving Jesuit behind Vatican II, and there, the ADL gives an award called the, the uh, Interfaith Award, and it's called the Cardinal Bia Interfaith Award. The ADL names their award after this most powerful Bavarian Jesuit, who later in the life of Pius XII was his confessor. I would say, again, that the Jesuits were behind Vatican II. They were whitewashing the Vatican's bloody hands 
during the Second World War when it was behind the Eurasian Holocaust, not only of Jews, but the Orthodox peoples and the Protestant Prussian peoples and the Catholic Bavarian peoples who refused to accept the infallibility of the Pope of 1870. And in this whitewash, they tried to appear to be nice. They called them the heretic Protestants, now separated brethren. They removed the term perfidious Jews from their prayers, and they appeared to be uh, more more gracious. But at the bottom of it is it's still an attempt to have one world government under the final pope ruling the world from Jerusalem. Uh, Daryl in Pennsylvania, you're on the investigative journal. Yeah, hello, and I just as a 26-year veteran of uh, the intelligence community, something really bothers me, and that is is that we have so many 33-degree Masons and uh, the Papal Knights of Malta being in charge or being assistant directors of such as the FBI and the CIA. Five CIA CIA chiefs were all Knights of Malta, William Donovan, John McCone, William Casey, William Colby, and George Tenet. And Michael made the comment, well, if someone's from a Rotary Club or something, that's no big deal. But these guys aren't from Rotary Clubs. They're from organizations whose loyalty is not to the American Constitution and the American people. And so my question to both of you would be, uh, to both of the guests, is uh, should anybody have dual loyalties? I don't want Zionist Israel uh, Americans holding any top-key positions, but I also don't want any high-level Freemasons and Papal Knights of Malta being all over the intelligence community and the fingers of power in America whose loyalty is not to the U.S. Constitution and the American people. What do you folks think of that? As long as the Pope claims to have universal temporal power over all the nations and that he is ultimately the one behind all high-level Freemasonry, which includes the Zionists, that we cannot have a true Republican free government at this time until they're held. So now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And as you know, our sponsor is courageously helping us to keep our show going here. So it's wendyslimited.com. Wendy'sLimited.com. So Wendy'sLimited.com. Wendy'sLimited.com has all the hottest new styles and couture trends and latest boutique women's apparel and shoes and heels and flats and all kinds of just wonderful stuff. You have hives and honey uh, jewelry armoire. It's been a favorite lately. And we have, of course, Windsor crystal uh, lamps. I have one uh, one in stock in particular that has been a favorite. So Wendy'sLimited.com is always open to help you get everything you need. Awesome Prada purse that we uh, saw that, that uh, Wendy's Limited just put up. So we have to think who out there wants to get incredible Prada fashion couture. You know that, um, from what I hear, they're a favorite of many, many ladies out there, many women all over the place. In fact, I think you cannot find a single family member or wife or sister or aunt or grandmother or loved one or girlfriend or what have you that uh, does not love Prada purses. So if you want to be totally awesome, you have to eventually come to grips with wendyslimited.com. 
Wendy's Boutique Limited has all the hottest new styles and latest women's apparel, everything you need to be totally awesome. If you're a woman or if you have a, a woman who's someone that you love, and of course we all love women because they're just so awesome. That's why Wendy'sLimited.com is so successful. So go check out Wendy's Boutique. Wendy'sLimited.com is the only place to go. And we have to recommend she's been totally 100% awesome to us and generous. So we are always going to be buying our jewelry, fine jewelry, gold, gold and silver jewelry, and all of our best boutique, couture, and designer trends. Are, we're going to go to Wendy'sLimited.com. So check out Wendy's Boutique Limited.